0: Good afternoon everyone. Uh, This meeting will come to order. Welcome to the uh, February 26, 2024 regular meeting of the Land Use and Transportation Committee of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. I am Supervisor Mirna Melgar, Chair of the Committee, joined by Board of Supervisors President Aaron Peskin and Vice Chair Dean Preston. The committee clerk today is John Carroll, and I would also uh, like to acknowledge James uh, Kawana from SF Cup TV for their support on today's meeting. Mr. Clerk, do you have any announcements?
1: Yes, thank you, Madam Chair. Please ensure that you've silenced your cell phones and other electronic devices you have brought with you into the chamber today. If you have any documents to include as part of any of today's files, you should submit them to me by bringing them forward to the rail. I'll meet you there and add them to the file public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, please line up to speak along your right-hand side of the room, and I'll point it out each time. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. You may send your written comments to me via email at john.carroll at sfgov.org, or you may send your written comments by U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall, that's the clerk's office, room 244, and City Hall's address is 1, Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, San Francisco, California, 94102. If you submit public comment in writing, I will forward your comment to the members of this panel, and I'll also include your comments within the file upon which you are commenting. And finally, Madam Chair, items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors' agenda of March 5, 2024, unless otherwise stated.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Clerk. Please uh, call item number one.
1: Agenda item number one is an ordinance amending the administrative code to establish the forgivable loan for first time home buyers program and the forgivable loan for first time home buyers fund to assist low, moderate and middle income first time homebuyers who would otherwise not be able to purchase a primary residence in the city and to require the human rights commission to establish policies and procedures to issue and possibly forgive loans from the fund and to provide oversight, monitoring, and forgiveness of such loans.
0: Thank you so much, Mr. Carroll. Colleagues, I am a proud sponsor of this legislation in partnership with the Human Rights Commission. We have Director Cheryl Davis here from the Human Rights Commission who will present um, after my remarks, and also Ms. Brittany Chiquada, who I'm very proud to have worked with on this. Um, As we all know, home ownership is uh, more out of reach uh, today in San Francisco than at any other generation, in large part because there are systemic challenges challenges to accessing capital and financing. In America, most folks have bought their homes with help uh, from their family, and that presupposes that you have uh, equity uh, that you can tap to to help the next generation, which many folks have not been able to be a part of. Homeownership offers a multitude of benefits, including economic security, housing stability, and an opportunity to build intergenerational wealth. There's a long, pervasive history of disparate access to homeownerships in San Francisco, including discriminatory practices of residential redlining and restricted covenants, limiting access to wealth accumulation uh, through home purchasing, um, have greatly contributed to these uh, wealth gaps. Particularly in San Francisco, we're seeing the worsening inequities of being able to attain home ownership and ultimately establishing long-term roots in San Francisco and maintaining agency over your own future. Our most recent housing element lists a number of actions that could help increase access to home for communities that have been harmed through targeted economic disruption, displacement, and manufactured barriers to accumulating intergenerational wealth. So this ordinance uh, intends to provide down payment assistance to communities that have been harmed through targeted economic disruption, displacement, and manufactured barriers to accumulating intergenerational wealth so that San Francisco can address multigenerational inequities in access to homeownership and to narrow and ultimately close homeownership wealth gaps. I want to thank the Human Rights Commission uh, and also Sarah Fabian at the City Attorney's Office uh, for their work on this ordinance. And I will now turn it over to uh, Director Cheryl Davis from the Human Rights Commission to share remarks. Welcome, Director Davis, and thank you so much for your leadership on this issue.
2: Good afternoon, and thank you um, for this opportunity. Thank you to the supervisors and thank you Supervisor Melgar for leading this effort. Um, I will just quickly say one of the things that uh, we've been working on and Brittany Chiquada who leads our economic justice division of the Human Rights Commission is a lot around the wealth gap that we see not just in San Francisco but across the country and one of the challenges and one of the things that's been uplifted is home ownership as a way to make that happen and over the years as we've engaged with folks in the Mission and Bayview and other places what we've heard is that a lot of the practices that we have with regards to our below market rate um, housing and all these other things is that they don't have the opportunity to actually benefit from the purchases that they make right and so whether it is um, not being able to sell at full value or not being able to reap the full value of those properties this is part of why this is so important I would also just say what we learned through the dreamkeeper initiative um, down payment assistance program is how challenging it has been um, for folks to go through that process and then once they go through it there's actually no real benefit on the other side once they do these programs and so as we think about building out and addressing um, the economic disparities that we see uh, this is a good strategy to do that Uh, and then as we also know we've lost not just um, people of color but we've lost a lot of our middle-class we lost a lot of our families and programs like this will actually make it appealing for folks to stay in San Francisco or to come back to San Francisco and so um, I want to thank you supervisor Melgar for your uh, leadership with this because um, this is something that we've heard for decades Uh, as someone who's been here for a while the idea that it is really hard to find Housing uh, and be able to afford housing for folks who would like to stay here in the city. And I think that this will go a long way to address that issue.
0: Thank you, Director Davis. Um, do any of my colleagues have questions or issues uh, to ask Director Davis?
3: I, I, I don't think there, well, I guess there could be some questions to the department. Um, my, my highest level question is where's the money coming from? <laughs> Um, but that's not necessarily a question for the department. I I mean, insofar as the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development has historically done down payment assistance, um, I guess really it's a a capacity question, which is um, how does HRC staff this up, what experiences HRC have, what controls will be put in place, Um, all of that stuff
2: yeah no I appreciate that question and it's something that I've discussed both with staff and with MOCD I would say that we view this as a pilot it is not um, my intention or the intention of the department to hold this long term I think we are really here to help think about what are the the strategies and things that we can help build in to address. Um, We had a conversation with Dan Adams and MOCD about once this is solidified and we've really developed the practices that we think are important and have done, which I think the Human Rights Commission's role in a lot of the work that's happened citywide is the community engagement process. I think we do a really good job of connecting with community and hearing what folks would like to see happen, and we want to make sure on the front end that we do that, and I think that's why we're here now. I do not think it is our intent to stay in this process that we don't have the staff, we don't have the capacity, and we don't have the built-in knowledge to do this long-term, but I do think we have the relationships and the rapport that should inform um, the build-out of this. And then I will just say if you would allow me just in terms of the um, the funding for this, we have um, through some of the work that we've been doing with uh, the Dream Keeper Initiative as well as other efforts, uh, been thinking about as we go through the process of budget cuts where can we leverage dollars that potentially would be cu- cut and lost to repurpose them before we have to do that so i think that there are some conversations that we're doing internally to look at how we can actually absolve those costs um, from money that may not roll up o- roll over otherwise
3: so i guess maybe this is really to the author and not to the department but and I hear the notion of a pilot program, but this is a permanent piece of law. This doesn't have a sunset date. It's not being set up as a pilot program. But maybe to the department, to um, Dr. Davis, just what would it take to even launch the pilot program in terms of developing that expertise? I mean, do you borrow people from MOHCD who have historically done this? What's the training period? How do you actually make this work or is there another model which is take hrc's community expertise and impose it on mohcd's existing structure which to me feels like we're not reinventing the wheel and we are i mean these loan documents are complicated loan documents that deal with yeah and
2: I don't think our to not to interrupt you supervisor and I think uh, President um, Peskin I I would defer to um, the author as well but I would say this that you know I was very clear with um, Supervisor Melgar her staff and the um, staff at the HRC we are not interested in like Taking over or doing something that is not necessarily in our wheelhouse when I say pilot, I mean I think of it not so much in terms of the legislation but the relationship so to your point to think about how do we um, think about um, the way that we build those rapport and relationship with other departments to say we can help you with this you will still continue to hold the pieces that are your pieces and 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 again we haven't Fully discuss this, but I would just say I almost think of it as a an agreement of sorts where we don't plan to distribute the funds or manage any of that, but that we would have the ability to say, okay, now that we're through this phase, we will send that funding over to the, um, to the department so that they can do the actual work. So we would first work on the first part to say, like, these are the things that we think or this is the way that we should engage with community and go through it in phases and then be able to, um, when we get to the phase that is really about loan documents and that process, to move out of the way.
0: Thank you, Director Davis. And if I could address those two uh, points, uh, President Peskin. Um, first, the operational. I did have a couple conversations with our new director, Dan Adams, as well. Um, and. Uh, terms of the operations of this um, and having the possibility of work ordering this item um, so that uh, HRC keeps that, you know, sort of control, conceptual control, while uh, uh, leveraging the technical expertise of MOHCD in terms of loan documents and, uh, you know, operations. And so I think... uh, We have a good partner in Mr. Adams, who uh, definitely knows uh, this and understands where we're trying to go. But I want to give a little bit of a more global taking a step back in this, uh, President Peskin, because you will remember that two years ago in this committee, we approved uh, the uh, innovation fund, which was a $10 million fund that was for down payment assistance for a few targeted groups that have been uh, historically included from homeownerships. And I went the extra step of writing legislation so that they wouldn't have to think about eligibility criteria and all of that stuff. And that effort did not pan out. And so I am eager to find partners uh, to uh, get to this goal um, because, you know, every day we are losing, uh, you know, homeowners who are low and moderate income from San Francisco and losing that opportunity for uh, building intergenerational wealth and also rectifying some of the racial injustices of the past as well as, you know, um, like childcare workers and folks who uh, we want to keep in the city, that middle class, um, and you know uh, whether it's innovation or you know pilot programs or a way to show that we can do things differently. I think it's all good. And I will just add that once upon a time we had a mayor's office of housing and a separate mayor's office of community development, and the idea of merging those two was exactly. For this so that there would be like a community-based, you know, needs-driven um, push towards a program. And so um, we're hoping that this, you know, it's a different flavor of that. But, you know, I, I have high hopes and I am so grateful to Director Davis for her vision um, and hard work and also, of course, to Brittany Chiquada for all of the, you know, sweat that went behind this.
3: Mr. Milger, I completely share your frustrations and salute your work, uh, which I participated in and wholeheartedly supported. And if my recollection serves me, I think the mayor clawed back some of those funds, um, which still gets me to the first thing about where the money's coming from. But, and I'm not sure how to articulate this, but I'm a little concerned about when a department is not doing what this board has legislated, that we maybe go and give another department a department I wholeheartedly respect, but that doesn't have, by their own admission, it's not in their wheelhouse. Um, And I look at the words in here, and I heard what you said about work ordering, but nothing in here says that. It says, HRC shall prepare standard form loan agreements. HRC shall be responsible for approving the disbursements. HRC shall collect revenues. Um, HRC shall charge fees. HRC is authorized to refinance. I mean, it, so I, it just scares me that because one department is not following the law that we have duly passed, separate and apart from the fact that the funds got <laughs> raided, that we're going to take another department that has never done this before. I mean, if it contemplates a pilot program and we're building capacity, or if it contemplates a work order situation where basically what we're saying here, let's be honest, is we're going to make HRC do what we wanted MOHCD to do in the first place, and we entrust in Dr. Davis that she will make MOHCD, which is now under new leadership, do that, maybe there's a way to do that without kind of recreating a wheel, because I worry that we're going to wake up in another year, and Dr. Davis is going to be saying, you know, it was impossible to train up all these staff, and uh, so I just don't want to set us up for failure.
0: Thank you, and I, of course, really appreciate that, President Peskin. I don't think that's what we're doing, Um, nor are we recreating the wheel. Um, There are all sorts of things that happen within our city that um, you know require the leveraging of the capacity and expertise in other departments, and we do that through work orders and we do that through you know formal collaborations. I think that this is all we're doing here. Uh, I don't I don't foresee that we're going to hire. Uh, loan officers at the, you know, HRC, nor uh, that we're going to recreate the documents. Uh, We will leverage, you know, what's there already. And let me just also add that this uh, sort of work to rectify Uh, injustices uh, and to provide opportunities and access is absolutely within the wheelhouse of uh, the HRC and I would rather lead with our values than with the loan documents. I think that that's entirely appropriate.
3: And then I just had one overarching question which was the down payment loan assistance program has been I think at hundred and twenty percent of AMI and this goes to 200% of AMI, which would be $200,000 for a single individual. What was your th- policy thinking behind the increase from 120 to 200?
0: So um, it's the numbers, it's the math of uh, how, uh, who can. Right now, afford to be able to get their foot in the door, um, and as uh, housing prices have escalated, that number, that percentage, has gone up, and the sort of that that gap uh, between you know what you earn and what you can afford and the market is increasing. So, I don't know if you had something to add, or Brittany. Okay.
2: Yes. Yeah, so. W- A lot of this is from the learnings of the Dreamkeeper Down Payment Assistance Program, and so I will say what we have been, um, and I know folks have maybe heard these numbers before, but in previous years, seven years, only five um, black people had gone through the Down Payment Assistance Program. In the last 18 months, we've had 40, three people go through, 31 of whom were black, and a lot of them were Muni bus drivers. and So a lot of this has been informed by this process of we are realizing that um, somebody made make $150,000 a year driving the bus and still not qualify to be able to buy a home here in San Francisco and we're talking about people who were born and raised here so this was an attempt to try and get to um, not having to feel like we've been pushing out the people who were born and raised here and actually work here every day providing services to folks here in the city and county of San Francisco.
0: With that then, uh, thank you, Director Davis. Let's go to public comment on this item, please, Mr. Carroll.
1: Thank you, Madam Chair. If you have public comment on agenda item number one, please line up to speak along that western wall of the room and then come forward to lectern when the speaker ahead of you is done. When the first speaker wants to begin, I'll start your time.
4: Okay, I am against this measure because the bloated San Francisco government cannot even take care properly of the programs already in place. San Francisco has a budget problem and adding more staff for yet another program is not okay since programs since programs already in existence funds are being cut this program may only benefit an extremely few people at a high cost we need to clean house and take care of what is already exists and get rid of a lot of it many people scrimp and save for their first house they do not go out for coffee fast food and go on vacations to save many of these people are not high income work hard save your money like many others and you get a house government handouts are not okay veterans get special loans the this Um, writing is not specific and says they may get their loan forgiven what does that exactly mean? I'm tired of non-specific government proposals. This sounds like a feel-good program that will do extremely little and cost a lot. Many sellers of property will not want to wait for the approval of a city, agency, loan when qualified people have their paperwork and financial statements already in place. Many sellers want an easy sale not waiting for a government decision. San Francisco is not a bank and too many times has been shown not to be aware of bad financial decisions. The only reason I can think this proposition is being made because people who have made campaign donations want easy jobs for their friends. I would like to eat a pint of chocolate mint ice cream every day this sounds good but it's not good for me
1: thank you thank you for sharing your comments do we have anyone else who has public comment on agenda item number one madam chair uh,
0: thank you so much uh, mr. clerk uh, supervisor Preston
5: thank you chair Melgar and thank you for for bringing this forward I, I would I'm, I'm curious and this can be after today, but be, it would be good to get MOCD's uh, perspective on that. Maybe you can report, uh, and maybe you already have had those conversations, or can report. If not, uh, if, if before this comes to vote, it would be great to get that perspective because it is, you know, I think I, I think there certainly have been some limitations in, again, under not under our current MOCD director, but there certainly have been limitations we have all I think, uh, I'm not sure how to say it nicely, but sort of struggled with some of these various important projects that we have tried to move forward. In my case, it's been, and, and you know the history on this well, it's been Midtown Park Apartments where we've sort of been unable to h- get MoCD to sort of embrace and move forward with some of these uh, proposals. So so I do uh, appreciate the, the desire to try to see more more creative ways and particularly given HRC's work uh, recently on dreamkeeper and reparations uh, and and working with uh, a lot of the the community that would be uh, would benefit from this legislation um, appreciate the the effort to do that um, be interesting to hear from you know particularly with new leadership under moCD if there's more of an appetite potentially uh, to take on pieces of this um, I I do concur with some of the sentiment from president peskin just around the I think what's been articulated around the role makes a lot of sense on the community outreach on coordination with moCD uh, I do think as written it's basically it it's not a drafted the ordinance as a pilot or temporary or or any limits I mean it really is a program that's fully operated and managed by HRC so uh, obviously it's is your ordinance and I don't know if there may be ways to sort of conform some of the language a little more to the anticipated roles that you see between, uh, between MoCD um, and HRC. But uh, yeah, I'd be curious if that, you know, if that might be worth it, worth exploring uh, or not. And then on the, on the AMIs, I just did, I, I guess I'm not, I mean that 200% AMI is a pretty high level for affordable housing. Uh, programs. Um, I mean, and even looking at like the bus driver example. I mean, bus drivers are not making 150 to 200 thousand dollars in in San Francisco. No, um, but if
0: they're married to another oh, bus driver, household. or mm-hmm. a nurse, mm-hmm. or a teacher you know, they hit that limit, and that was always the problem. So, you mm-hmm. know, th- I will just, you know, go back and say a couple things about you if, if I sure, could. Sure, please, <laughs> please, So um, I think that, uh, you know, we, the down payment assistant loan, pro- loan program at the Mayor's Office of Housing was started, what, like 23 years ago under the original Prop A. It was a bond, um, and... Um, the program guidelines have remained pretty much unchanged, uh, but for some of the policies and procedures, which, you know, have been changed a couple of times. But, you know, um, as the market has... uh, progressed in San Francisco uh, and the disparities have remained. Um, I think it's important for us to try new things and to try to address the focus needs of the community. And it's difficult sometimes, you know, uh, when uh, the Dream Keeper Initiative was rolled out, uh, we basically mimicked a lot of what the down payment assistance load program was doing already. And we learned an awful lot about what worked and what didn't work and how some of the policies and procedures that we had unwittingly reinforced some of those challenges and disparities rather than address them, you know, in a focused way. And this is something that we have known for uh, actually over a decade in terms of the disparities of who uh, engages in the down payment assistance loan program. So I uh, I think that uh, I have, I wanted to tell you, I did, this was top of my list when we got a new director of the Mayor's Office of Housing along with co-ops and I can report to you that there is a very uh, committed willingness to address these issues, which I'm very, very happy about because that's also coupled with, you know, technical uh, expertise. Uh, so I think it's, we're, we're on a path to uh, progress here. Um, I think it's all good and there is a willingness to work with HRC on this. Um, As far as the language, I do think that it's important that HRC kind of own this initiative uh, because um, it will not get sort of sidetracked or, you know, taken off course uh, when the policies and procedures are written or the documents are written because it allows for this program, which is clearly an HRC program, to meet its goal. Uh, in terms of the the values that are behind this rather than conform to an existing set of protocols and policies and procedures, which sometimes the bureaucracy is what we tend to do. Uh, Yes, uh, President Peskin, you've got something. Yeah,
3: no, I, I will go back to my earlier line of reasoning here. I mean, and I'm just reading from the Legislative Digest. The ordinance, and you state this, requires the HRC to administer and manage the program. The director of the HRC would have to establish regulations setting forth the policies and procedures of the program to issue loans from the fund, uh, provide oversight, monitoring, and forgiveness of such loans. the director of HRC would prepare all loan documents, require that loans be secured by a deed of trust and other security instruments for the benefit of the city, and monitor compliance with all loan agreements, program regulations, and applicable laws. And you want them to own it. What I heard Dr. Davis saying was they don't have that capacity. I mean, so I mean, I think the real question here is like, okay, Dr. Davis, does the 2024 25 budget submission? include positions for this are they going to be taken on loan from MOHCD i mean i mean the the plain language of this doesn't seem to comport with the capacity that the department states it doesn't have.
0: So let, let me maybe ask the deputy city attorney on this, because the way that I read this language, nothing precludes uh, the department from having a work order relationship with Mayor's Office of Housing to do uh, loan agreements. It just requires that those agreements go back for an ultimate uh, you know, sign-off uh, from the director of the HRC.
6: Deputy City Attorney Ann Pearson. So the ordinance itself does vest the authority to operate and the duty to operate this program in HRC and whether that money can be work ordered between departments is really more of a question for the controller or the mayor's budget office than for me. If they were to do that, I think there would at least need to be some sort of memorandum of understanding between the departments as to who is doing what. But I can't speak to whether or not the money could simply be work-ordered.
0: No, but does the language preclude this from
6: happening? As I said, the language makes HRC responsible for the operation of this program. And um, I don't know that it necessarily precludes some pieces of it from being performed by other departments. Um, But I I can't say without further research and perhaps talking to the controller's office as well, whether money could be work ordered for the operation of the program, either in its entirety or in large pieces. Thank you, deputy city attorney.
0: So, you know, it is my intention to have uh, HRC own this and have ultimate control uh, over the program because I think it will, you know, keep the integrity of uh, the goals of the program.
3: Yeah, and I don't want to be argumentative. I totally understand that. I'm just asking a basic implementation question, which is insofar, and I think what the deputy city attorney said is, that the duty under this ordinance lies with the department. And so the simple question I'm asking is, okay, so let's just pretend that this is law tomorrow and you've got the money the next day. How are you gonna implement it? That's all I'm asking.
2: So the intention was after the conversation with Dan Adams is that we would be, to your point, right? Whether we are sharing, you know, like it's DSW type, right? Like whether it is just sharing of a staff, we have several folks in our department who actually are dispatched to us to do work in the space. So I think, the assumption or the belief or the agreement that we had is that yes the HRC would be leading in this but we would be working with current MOCD staff that would be assigned to support so it wouldn't be hiring of new staff it would be folks that are already really doing this work but they would be assigned to support the work
0: thank you director Davis isn't that sort of how you configured the Dream people initiative as well
2: so uh, the Dreamkeeper Initiative actually has funds that are sitting across departments, and we, we meet with those departments collectively once a month, and then we meet with each department um, also monthly to have updates on what they're doing, to and if there are issues or challenges, then we um, work to reallocate those dollars so that they're no longer with that particular department if we can't have agreement about what it is that the expectation is so that one is the the programmatic piece it technically the hrc is responsible for the dreamkeeper dollars no matter where they sit right And so we oversee and are accountable through the mayor's budget office, as well as the mayor, to give an accounting for those dollars, even though we may or may not have direct access to them. So yes, we are responsible. We are the ones that have to be accountable um, at the administrative level to explain what's happening in other departments with those dollars.
0: Okay, thank you, Director Davis. Um, uh, Mr. Clerk uh, reminded me that I had failed to close public comment on this item, so public comment on this item is now closed okay if there are no other questions or comments colleagues I would like to make a motion that we send this item to the full board with positive recommendation
1: on the motion offered by the chair that this ordinance be sent to the full board of supervisors with a recommendation of the land use and transportation committee on that motion vice chair Preston Preston aye member peskin no peskin no chair Melgar aye Melgar aye madam chair there are two eyes and one no with member peskin in the dissent
0: Thank you very much. Um, Mr. Clerk, let's go to item number two, please.
1: Agenda item number two is an ordinance amending the planning code to designate the Sacred Heart Parish Complex as a landmark consistent with the standards set forth in Article 10 of the planning code, affirming the planning department's secret determination and making public necessity, convenience, and welfare findings under planning code section 302 and findings of consistency with the general plan and the eight priority policies of planning code section 101.1.
0: Okay, we have uh, Pilara Lavalle here uh, to make a presentation. Welcome back.
7: Thank you, Chair, Chair Melgar, uh, President Vice Chair Preston, and President Peskin. I'm Pilar Lavallee, Planning Department staff, um, and I'd like to have the slides, please, from the laptop. Um, I'm here to present today uh, the Historic Preservation Commission's actions regarding landmark designation of Sacred Heart Parish Complex. On October 5th, 2016, the Historic Preservation Commission adopted resolution number 806, to initiate Article 10 Landmark Designation of Sacred Heart Parish Complex. The Historic Preservation Commission then uh, reviewed and made recommendation on this landmark designation at their hearing on September 20, 2023. The parish complex consists of the church constructed in 1898 and 1909, the rectory first constructed in 1891 and enlarged in 1906, the school, constructed in 1926, and the convent, constructed in 1936. At their public hearing in September 2023, the Historic Preservation Commission voted unanimously to approve a resolution recommending landmark designation, finding that the complex is significant for its association with the Western edition and Catholic religious institutions in San Francisco in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It is also significant for its association with Father Eugene Boyle, pastor of the church from 1968 to 1972. Father Boyle was a prominent and influential civil rights activist in the 1960s and 1970s. He was involved in the black civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, urban renewal, fair housing, and farm worker labor movements in San Francisco. Finally, the complex embodies the distinctive characteristics of the Romanesque revival style. The church and rectory are also significant for their association with um, architect of merit, Thomas J. Welsh. Further, um, the commission's recommendation included removal um, of ser- several character-defining features, including um, features of the interior the, of the church. The commission heard public comments in supportive designation, along with opposition to the removal of these features. Um, from the list of the character-defining features in the draft ordinance. Similar concerns have been raised in correspondence that has been sent to the board in advance of today's uh, committee hearing. And uh, we have worked with the Supervisor Preston's office as well as um, the, the commenters um,
0: and property owners to address these comments. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Ms. LaVallee. Uh, Supervisor Preston, congratulations on getting it this far
5: uh thank you chair melgar and uh and thank you Ms. Lavalley, for your uh for your presentation for all your work uh and the department's work on this uh and i think you gave a, a great summary of the the history of this site so i will not repeat that uh in in my remarks except uh just to say that this is this is a very significant site in uh in district five really in the heart of district five um and uh, we've heard about some of the both the history of the site as well as uh, the architectural Im- importance uh, and the association with uh, Father Boyle um, and. Uh, also, in recent years, and it's amazing how many people have been introduced to this building, uh, not through the church, not through the school, not through all the, uh, the historical uses, uh, but as a place uh, for them and their families to go roller skating at the Church of uh, Eight Wheels, which uh, found a, a home there and very much appreciate the, uh, the owners and uh, project sponsor here's um, ongoing um, uh, willingness and... and um, and I think excitement about having this space uh, continue to be uh, a place for the the Church of 8 Wheels, which for those who haven't been curated by uh, the one and only David Miles, and uh, really, if you haven't been there yet, uh, please go and roller skate inside this absolutely beautiful church building. Um, This is a perfect candidate for historic landmarking, um, and very much appreciate, as I mentioned, planning department, the the historic preservation uh, commission doing all the research and work to bring this uh, forward today we have heard from a lot of stakeholders um, about the uh, the contents specifically the landmarking we've had uh, a number of meetings uh, with uh, representatives for the property owners um, as well as leaders in the preservation community and planning department staff And, and I very much appreciate the spirit of collaboration among all parties to come up with an agreement or maybe that's overstating it as close to an agreement as we can get uh, here um, on changes to to the landmarking ordinance um, in addition to uh, Pilar Lavallee I want to uh, thank Rich Sucre Planning um, Historic Preservation Commission as I mentioned uh, in particular the President uh, Diane Matsuda um, Woody Bounty of SF Heritage Preservationist Mark Reiser Um, and owner John Pollard along with Annabelle uh, McClellan and and just many uh, uh, preservationist historians and other community residents who reached out to us. And finally, thanks to uh, uh, Peter Miljanic of the uh, City Attorney's Office for drafting these amendments and having them ready to go. Today, so we have circulated those, um, and uh, just appreciate everyone coming together in good faith to find uh, some common ground. So, I've I've moved I've circulated some amendments. We'll like to move them after public comment. Um, they, they do four main things I'm not going to read through uh, each uh, amendment they have been circulated and my understanding is these are substantive amendments so they will uh, get if passed get posted and folks will have a week to take a look at them um, but what they what they do uh, in summary is they add findings regarding the exterior and uh, enclosed uh, bridge certain uh, interior character defining features and specified provisions regarding um, stained glass windows and the bell so their findings regarding all of those Uh, it adds clarifying language on the process to determine the necessity of replacement in kind features Um, this was a major issue that came up with concerns from the preservation community that language governing the so-called replacement in kind um, of character defining features was was vague and so the amendments uh, make that uh, significantly uh, clearer so it's clear when preservation is required and then uh, the circumstances under which uh, replacement uh, can occur. Um, the other major thing that uh, the amendments do is provide further detail on external features including uh, the wooden connector bridge as I mentioned, as a character defining uh, resource. uh, This was a a major issue for preservationists and I appreciate everyone coming to the table um, uh, to to protect that feature. And that's one of the features uh, for the the non-expert walking by the building, one of the really distinct things that everyone recognizes on, on this building, um, and and then the last thing was um, adding a, a, a sub paragraph right at the end, uh, sub paragraph two on the last page, uh, which lists lists some uh, interior features, um, and that's really in addition to. Um, though the work of the preservation committee um, was uh, less focused on the interior features and uh, so that includes the choir loft uh, access to the stairs at the connector bridge and historical paneling trim and sear, uh, ceiling materials so that that's uh, you know the 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 summary of what these amendments are they're spelled out a little more in detail in what we distributed but uh, hopefully that at least uh, frames things uh, for those who are commenting publicly and just really want to thank everyone for their engagement and hopefully getting to the point where we are landing this long overdue uh, landmarking that we are very excited for in the heart of District 5. Thanks.
0: Thank you, uh, Supervisor. Um, President Peskin.
5: It is with regard to the last
3: couplet in Supervisor Preston's uh, speech that I raised this question, and I apologize if Ms the Valley already answered this, but what was the cause of the eight years from when it was initiated to today? I mean, usually, you know, a year, sometimes as fast as six months. What, why did this take eight years from, I mean, I, I understand that it got to the Historic Preservation Commission in October, October, November, December, January, four months ago, so that's kind of normal government time, but what was the previous eight years about?
7: Pilar the Valley Planning Department staff. Um, excellent question. Um, I'm not 100% sure of a, of a, of a detailed answer for that, um, as I have only recently been involved in this uh, designation myself. But um, I think it was a number of different um, Uh, elements, uh, including the fact that this is a complex, so multiple buildings, um, and therefore has a slightly, you know, more complicated or more detailed um, designation and historical report than we might do for an individual building. Um, It also covers, you know, a longer time span of different periods of significance. Um, So I think that there was probably some, some some of that that was, um, t- took some time at the initial stages, as well as uh, multiple property owners. Um, and I believe also, you know, those property owners have had um, some various ideas and thoughts and, um, about specific projects going forward um, for the property, and that has also played a, played a role, as well as just the, you know, the global uh, pandemic and various other things that are outside of any of our control
5: in this room. Thank you. And, Go and,
0: ahead, Tiff Supervisor.
5: Yeah, I'll, I'll just add, I had the same question, so I, I appreciate the question. I can only speak to it uh, since I came to office in December uh, 2019, but um, I will. my understanding is, um, at, as Ms. Lavalle said, multiple owners, evolving plans, uh, and we've met with uh, developers uh, a number of times uh, and then the pandemic uh you know so at least uh, in the last handful of years but i'm i 'm not so sure and uh, maybe public commenters may have more information on on some of the uh the the prior years it is it is a trick i will say from a preservation perspective and from a development trying to develop within um, the while preserving the historical features it is it is a tricky site, so I think uh, that plus just the market changes during the pandemic definitely affected the timeline at least for the development plans.
0: Okay, let's go to public comment on this item, please, Mr. Clark.
1: Thank you, Madam Chair. If you have public comment on agenda item number two, please line up to speak along the Western wall of this room. I'll retrieve your comment letters. If you just leave them on the rail there, yes, but please everyone else just line up along that wall over there. And when the first speaker is ready, please go forward to the microphone.
0: I would just say if, Mr. Clerk, if we have somebody, uh, if we have uh, folks who wanna provide public comment who are mobility impaired, maybe we can let them go first so they can sit down. Go ahead, ma'am.
8: Hi, my name is Bertha Canty. I live in the Diamond Heights area. I started going to Sacred Heart Church in 1973. I raised two children there we all are baptized there. And the thing that I don't understand is how a church go from, a church of fall, from getting on your knees to pray to falling on your knees on a pair of skates. That is not justified. I think they could find another entity if it's for the kids or something than for it to be just a skating ring. I think that's disrespectful to, to all of us. My kids was invited to that church after it became a skating ring and my son was crying. He couldn't go in there. And my daughter has a 10 year old daughter now. She wants to go over there. My mother, her mother said, you're not going in that skating ring because that's where we worshiped That for years. So I don't know if I'm going along the line that you guys want, but this is what I feel in my heart. I think it's sacred religious for that to be happening at a church. That church is not 40 years old. That church is over 100 years old. And it was so beautiful. People went in there and and took down what they wanted to take down, took out what they wanted to take out. They had no respect for the church. They was just thinking about the money deals they could make. And I think that's horrible. That's my story about this church. I would like to see it turned around from a skating ring to something more prosperous for the city so that we could look up with pride at when when we drive or walk by it.
1: Thank you for sharing your
9: comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Hello, I'm Mark Reiser speaking on behalf of the Historic Preservation Fund Committee. The HPFC initiated, managed, and provided to the department the study which is the basis for the case report underlying this nomination. It was produced to the standards and format set by the department. In fact, it exceeded substantially those standards, resulting in a 90-page document that I'm happy to share copies of with any supervisor who might wish one. Two minutes does not afford sufficient time for clarifying comments on the issues before you, but Supervisor Preston, to whom we're grateful, has just summarized, I think, the issues very well. Um, I did not, however, know until your remarks the scope of the amendments, nor have I seen the language so my, my remarks couldn't take all those details into account. I want to use my very limited time to do three things. I want to address the need originally, the need to correct the mistaken basis and unexplained exclusion of a very distinctive character defining bridge feature, which connects the church and the rectory buildings. I want to call your attention, I did want to call your attention to the other refinements to the draft ordinance proposed and supported by the HPFC, San Francisco Heritage, and the building owners, which were provided to Supervisor Preston's office. And I want to ask that you read at a minimum the highlighted text on page 2 and possibly page 3, depending upon how it displays, of my letter of yesterday to you, which spells out the reasons you've been asked to correct these deficiencies and which seeks to clarify the context of this item. Very briefly, the bridge, as noted in my letters of December 11 and February 25, and supplemented by additional and updated information provided to the Department and Supervisor Preston's office, is an integral feature of these historic buildings. Consistent standards require that it be included as a character-defining feature, a denotation not opposed by its owner. It dates to the 1907 rebuilding of the rectory, connects the two most important buildings on the site. It is older by 20 and 30 years than the two other buildings, and- Speaker's time is concluded. Thank you for sharing your comments with the committee. And we do have your comments
1: on file as well. Could we have the next speaker, please?
10: Greetings to our supervisors. My name is Robert O Pritchard, vice president of the sacred heart gospel (laughs) Choir, member of save our sacred heart preservation group and the Victorian Alliance to own any historic property is to be its steward, preserving its character and history for the future. Unfortunately, no owner of any significant property will own it forever. A gentleman's agreement is not binding on the next owner, but the impact of this vote today will last in perpetuity. Sacred Heart served the Western edition for 120 years and now Thomas J. Welsh's last surviving ecclesiastical masterpiece in San Francisco. Angela Alioto first attempted to complete landmarking before AB 133 prevented it in 1994. Two decades ago, many more would have been here to speak with us today. As a Sacred Heart parishioner in exile, I remained caretaker of the building during Mr. Firth's ownership. I represent countless deceased, as well as the architect's great-granddaughter today, Patricia Welsh, who is unable to attend due to her poor health. Her birthday is today and prays that her birthday wish may come true. Thomas Welsh's designs flow from the iconic exterior into its interior, thus the church in its entirety must be considered. Our Lady of Guadalupe, with its intact frescoes, Holy Cross, and St. Joseph's in their reuses have all had their spatial interiors respected and retained. Achille Jadisi's existing ceiling murals at Sacred Heart deserve the same respect. Sadly, San Francisco has lost countless art and architectural treasures. I leave you with these words from Victor Hugo. A building has two things, its use and its beauty. Its use belongs to the owner, its beauty to everyone. To destroy it is to overstep one's rights. As a resident of the Western Edition and the conscientious steward of another historic resource, the Reutlinger House, I implore you to take what you do today very seriously.
1: Thank you for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please?
11: Hello, my name is Robert Fisher, and I'm basically the voice of someone in the community in the neighborhood. Uh, I spent most of my years in San Francisco living in the shadows of Sacred Heart Church. I always thought of the Campanile in the way Parisians see the Eiffel Tower. It seems as though wherever I went in the city, I would look up, see Sacred Heart, and know where home is. In 2004, I heard that they were going, that it was at risk of being torn down, and I thought, you know, it's such a shame it's gonna, they're gonna tear that place down. I wish there was something I could do. Next thing that I remember, I was copying down the phone number from the Save Our Sacred Heart banner on the side of the church, and before long I was hosting a fundraiser for the folks who were fighting to save that landmark. As I canvassed local businesses in the Lower Haight asking for donations to raffle, I was amazed at the outpouring of support from nearly everyone I spoke to. Clearly Sacred Heart meant a lot to so much of the community as it still does today. I am eternally grateful that Sacred Heart is still standing my hope now is that as much of what remains as possible be safeguarded and preserved for future generations, especially the work of Achille Gysi, an amazing artist with connections to the Vatican and Napoleon III. Thank you.
1: Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please.
12: Hello, supervisors. My name is Megan Smith, and I'm here with the Victorian Alliance. Um, you can see the tower Everywhere from San Francisco, um, I was looking at it from Dolores Street the other day, and there it is. It's just a very important, important structure, and I do appreciate that there are some amendments because that's what I wanted to ask for today: that the landmark resolution should include the interior, especially the frescoes um, and the original Welsh architecture design of the interior. I think that's really important. And as the previous speaker, two previous speakers said, the interiors of these churches that are saved as landmarks can be reused and preserve the interiors as well. The connector bridge is important and should be recognized as a character-defining feature of the structure. It sounds like that's in process to be saved. And the board should not permit the property owner and developer free reign to replace in kind any important features without first obtaining city approval. Um, I thank you for your time, and I will put my card.
1: Thank you. I'll retrieve the speaker card in a moment. Next speaker, please.
13: Good afternoon, Supervisors. My name is Jan Robinson, and as a longtime San Francisco resident and a member of the Committee to Save St. Bridget Church, I'd like to once again express my full support for the landmarking of Sacred Heart Church. This building has been part of the city's skyline since 1897, its elegant golden form gracing the hill overlooking Hayes Valley for longer than any of our lifetimes. Having had one of the most diverse congregations in San Francisco, Sacred Heart had its own gospel choir for many years, and that choir recently celebrated its 50th anniversary despite losing the beloved home it had there. Not only did the State Office of Historic Preservation find Sacred Heart Church eligible for listing on the National Register of Historic Places in 2010, but the building contains a painted ceiling by acclaimed Italian artist Achille D.C. Having done work for the Vatican and for the wife of Emperor Napoleon III, this work is of great historical significance. The building's architect was Thomas Welsh, who designed other churches for the archdiocese. Sadly, the others were lost to earthquake and fires, but Sacred Heart is the sole remaining example of Welsh's remarkable work. Maximum safeguards are needed to protect the existing architecture in both the interior and the exterior city. Approval should be required before any attempt by the property owner and developer to replace in kind any features currently existing on the premises. San Francisco has lost too many of its historic buildings such as the Fox Theater and City of Paris. Those buildings are irreplaceable and it is tragic that future generations will never see or experience them. We at St. Bridget were successful with our landmarking and are so grateful to have had the city's help in making it San Francisco City Landmark 252. Sacred Heart is also an artistic historical treasure and fully deserving of maximum landmark protection. Please honor the people who donated to and built it, plus those who fought so hard to save it.
1: Thank you for sharing your comments. Thank you for your time. Let's have the next speaker, please.
14: Good afternoon, Supervisors. My name is David Miles. I run the roller skating at the Church of Eight Wheels. I've been doing this for the past 10 years. Um, And my perspective is, I guess, different because, you know, I had a party there one night. I, I, I got in touch with the owners and asked them, could I bring some skaters in? That place was nothing the way it looks today. Um, it was totally different. The It had been shut down for at least four, five, six years. There was dust, there was everything. And um, when I think of what the church represents, and you know what it's done for the community, I, I kind of think that we've been kind of keeping that going. Maybe not the way they did it when they first opened, but every time we open the church, we ring the bell, and we it adds uh, some excitement to people to come in. It's a beautiful place, it's a great place, but it was sold, okay? I had nothing to do with that. Um, the government or whoever is in charge decided to sell it to people to develop it. And, you know, i don't, you know, I I have no answers as far as for the people who went to church there because what I do is I try to keep all the traditions that I know of going. You know, we had the Black Panther breakfast uh, celebration to celebrate when they were given the free food program. We, um, when we have people skating, I feel that they are living up to what the religious purposes of what the building was for. They're enjoying their se- themselves. They are involved with each other. There's no violence, there's caring. there's all the things that church tells you you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to live. And okay, if you don't do this, when you think of the repairs that need to be made, it's a beautiful place. Just a few more seconds. Thank beautiful you. For sharing place. Your comments looks
1: great i'm sorry we do have to move on to the next speaker each speaker just has the two minutes to speak thank you for for providing your comments
15: good afternoon supervisors my name is woody Labounty. i'm the president and ceo of san francisco heritage thank you so much for considering this landmark uh designation before you Um, And I really want to thank Supervisor Preston and your staff for the amendments and for being open and considering and being in uh, a lot of discussions over the last couple of weeks about um, the preservation community's concerns that the landmark designation was not specific enough about this important and amazing building. Um, I always, when I look at landmarks, I always try to find ones that tick a lot of boxes, and this one does. It is important to the events of San Francisco. It's not only visible from many parts of the city today, but it is in so many of the historical photos you'll see of the city during the earthquake and fire. It was a beacon and a refuge for people who were displaced during that. Um, Architecturally, it definitely qualifies. Architect Thomas Walsh is an amazing architect who did some very important buildings in the city. Um, And I also think that we can't overlook the connection with Father Boyle and his role as a civil rights activist. So this landmark checks lots of boxes, and I want to thank the owners. I want to thank the preservationists. I want to thank the Sacred Heart community for coming together and coming out and supporting this landmark designation and for working together to make sure it's here for the next generation and all the ones after that. Thanks again.
1: Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. SFGov TV, if we could display the there a way to slides. activate the display? there it is I'm gonna start your time
16: uh, good afternoon my name is Jerry Augusta with Noe Vista and Buena Vista Builders Our family, bu- family business uh, building exclusively in San Francisco since the early 1990s um, and we are uh, owners and stewards of three of the four buildings being considered today um, we have built many units in San Francisco we've renovated many historic structures some which have d- predated these buildings um, we are proud to be involved in this, uh, in this project. Um, staff, uh, planning staff has excluded uh, the permanent before these amendments. First of all, we have not seen the, I have not seen the final amendments, and we're going to need time to review what those are and what is all included and excluded. I have not seen them to date. Um, but I understand that the, the connector bridge is now included. Um, I think that that is a mistake. Um, because it's really, even though it's, it's old, it's not one of uh, Thomas J. Welsh's, uh, it's not part of his original construction. Uh, what we're talking about is a wood-clad uh, uh, bridge with an inelegant uh, arched window, which does not in any way <coughs> reflect what is there now with these tall, arched windows, which is from the bell tower to the church facade to the top floor of the rectory. Um, since we represent three buildings, is it possible to have another minute? You have uh, 22 seconds. The The issue, there's gonna be an issue that's raised about uh, that this bridge was built in two, uh, 1907. When um, Mark Reiser did send me last week an article from the Chronicle that talked about the rectory, saying that the rectory adjoins the church uh, with which it is connected by a glassed, enclosed Thank you for sharing your comments. From the-, the
1: speaker's time is concluded. We need to hear from the next speaker now. Thank,
16: Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Uh, I think we're all here together. F- uh, we'll have-
1: next speaker, please.
17: Good afternoon. Uh, My name is Simon I'm here to represent the owner. So we have been working closely with the uh, planning department and industry parties over the years, which has intensified over the last few months. So at the time of this hearing, we have not had sight of the final version of the language. I would like to say for the record that we are in support of the landmarking, subject subject to it being in line with the planning department's recommendation, Um, along with the minor amendments we have worked on with Mark Reiser from the Historic Preservation Fund Committee. Um, There are two additional items that I'd like to bring to your attention. So, first off, the decorative ceiling cannot be restored or preserved as is; it is currently crumbling. Um, There is a current safety net which which stops falling material, as there was a prior incident where there was crumbling material that nearly hit a member of the public. Um, Secondly, the choir loft, the the intention is to display the stained glass window as well as the bell tower um, in that area. The owner is ready to move forward with continuing to provide community event space in the building uh, alongside some much needed housing. And then finally, um, I'd like to thank Supervisor Preston and his office for their interest and support during this process. Thank you.
1: Thank you for sharing your comments. Do we have anyone else who has public comment on agenda item number two related to the landmark for Sacred Heart Parish? Madam Chair.
0: Okay, public comment on this item is now closed. Uh, Supervisor Preston.
5: Thank you, Chair Melgar, and thanks to everyone who came out uh, to speak on this and who provided uh, letters and and emails on it. Um, And uh, as I mentioned, so the the, uh, amendments uh, that were circulated to committee members uh, that I hope we will move uh, today uh, will be uploaded on the site they are what are called substantive amendments meaning we will uh, not be mo- that there will basically be an automatic uh, continuance so you'll have a chance to take a further look at those for those some folks who reference not yet having seen those they will have those before them um, and uh, just again want to thank everyone for I-, I think the you know the amendments uh, reflect the areas um, of uh of agreement from the discussions um that have been held over particularly the last uh week or so i want to thank kyle smeely um of my office as well as preston kilgore for their work on this and again the city attorney's office for getting these together in time for us to vote on these uh amendments today um i would like to unless there are comments from colleagues which i'm not seeing any so i would like to go ahead and uh, move the amendments
1: on the motion offered by Vice-Chair Preston that the ordinance be amended as presented. Vice-Chair Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. Member Peskin? Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar? Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes on the motion to amend. Thank you.
5: Thank you. And, and with that uh, amended, uh, I would now like to go ahead and be added as a sponsor on this item, uh, Mr. Clerk, uh, and uh, would, uh, I guess we need to continue the item as amended. One week is okay? Uh, one week. To the March 4th, 2024 meeting. Yes. On the motion offered by Vice Chair Preston
1: that this ordinance be continued as amended to March 4th in this committee. Vice Chair Preston. Aye. Aye. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes once again.
0: That motion passes. Thank you. Uh, Let's go ahead and call item number three, please. Okay,
1: just a moment, please. Agenda item number three is an ordinance amending the planning code to change the title of the family housing opportunity special use district to the family and senior housing opportunity special use district authorized within the special use district the greater of up to six units per lot or one unit per thousand square feet of lot area on individual corner lots in residential house districts the greater of up to 18 units per lot or one unit per thousand square feet of lot area On corner lots resulting from three lot mergers in residential house one districts and the greater of up to 12 units per lot or one unit per thousand square feet of lot area on corner lots resulting from two lot mergers in residential house one districts extend various development and streamlining benefits including lot merger benefits to residential mixed one, residential house two and residential house three districts within the area of the special use district bounded by the Great Highway, Lincoln Way, 19th Avenue and Slope Boulevard and refined project eligibility criteria in the special use district. Amending the zoning map to reflect the renamed family and senior housing special use district, affirming the planning department's secret determination and making findings of consistency with the general plan and the eight priority policies of planning code section 101.1 and findings of public convenience, necessity, and welfare under planning code section 302.
0: Okay, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Clerk. We continued this item from a couple weeks ago to allow for uh, some interpretations and amendments. Uh, President Peskin raised a really good question about uh, one of the possible amendments that the deputy city attorney was not ready to give us an opinion on right at the time. But we have uh, Ms. Uh, Walco Nelson here. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, and uh, with that, I will turn it over to my colleague from District 4, uh, Supervisor and Thank you for joining us today.
18: Thank you for having me. So we've heard this for a few weeks in a row now. Uh, today, hopefully, is just a little bit of a cleanup um, based on Supervisor Peskin or President Peskin's um, question. So as you can see on page eight, we're just reverting back to what was originally in the language, the look back, the five year and one year look back. So that's all we are uh, changing today, just reverting back to what we had. And just to remind folks in the audience and watching on TV, this is um, the whole point of this legislation is to provide Uh, more housing opportunities on corner lots only um, for seniors and families and elevator buildings so seniors have options, families have options uh, to stay in San Francisco and it's kind of the model out, uh, I call it the Gus's Market model out at 44th and Noriega in the Outer Sunset where you have a grocery or some amenity on the ground floor and housing above and this would be corner lots only kind of anchoring in neighborhoods.
0: Okay. Uh, President Peskin um... thank you okay Uh,
3: oh the only other thing I would add um, and this actually is a lesson we learned in the 45th Wawona SUD and this will not slow things down but insofar as this legislation particularly calls out uh, areas that are in the coastal zone by the Great Highway um, bounded by Lincoln and Sloat. Uh, There's a sliver of that that's in the coastal zone. So I think we need to make clear that until the Coastal Commission approves that permits in that sliver of this SUD would not issue, um, it's a small subset, but. I think that could be an uncodified section, which I know is not prepared today, but we could add to at the full board.
0: Okay, let's take public comment on this item. Or did you have something to say, Deputy I think the city attorney, attorney might. I saw saw her her
6: shift. shift. That's (laughs) (laughs) Deputy (laughs) city attorney Ann Pearson. For some reason, this chair is especially tall today. (laughs) Um, Yes, we're happy to prepare that uncodified language and have it ready for you to introduce when this gets to the full board. Okay, thank you. Um,
0: Let's take public comment on this item.
1: Thank you, Madam Chair. If you have public comment on agenda item number three related to the family and senior housing opportunity special use district, please come forward to the lectern at this time and speak when you are ready.
19: Um, I'll be using the overhead SFGov TV.
1: If we could display it. Okay. We uh, go.
19: Eileen Boken will speak in strong opposition. The sponsor states that this legislation is demicity or Paris in the Sunset. Uh, this is the Montparnasse Tower in Paris. Is this what Paris in the Sunset would look like? The Planning Commissioner Moore has stated that um, this is lot merger legislation. Uh, this is Gus's Noriega. Uh, Planning Commissioner Diamond has stated that dense infill projects should have step downs to avoid sticking out like a sore thumb. Uh, this project has no step downs. Both uh, Sloat Boulevard, pictured here, and Ocean Avenue are wide streets, which could accommodate higher density, but are not included in the proposed SUD. Uh, Is this a classic case of not in my backyard? Thank you.
1: Thank you for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please?
20: This proposed ordinance is defective on its face because the proposed special use district is partially in the coastal zone, and therefore the SUD requires a local coastal program amendment certified by the Coastal Commission. But there's no mention of this requirement anywhere. And the name of this ordinance is Pure Marketing. The Family and Senior Housing Opportunity Special Use District is more accurately called the Sunset Parkside Demolition and Redevelopment Special Use District that will change life as we know it. You know, there's a false narrative underlying this ordinance that single-family homes in the Sunset Parkside are exclusionary, that they're not equitable. Let's remember that working class, and middle-class people scrimped and saved and borrowed so that they could afford a home in the sunset, often because they could not afford to buy or even rent elsewhere in the city. And many of us chose the neighborhood because we like the slower-paced lifestyle. Now, two supervisors who live in single-family homes want others to suffer the grim consequences of their ugly redevelopment plan. Supervisor Engardio lives just south of the boundary of his proposed special use district. Supervisor Melgar lives in a single-family home in Ingleside Terrace, east of the boundary. Living in single-family homes, on streets lined with single-family homes, is apparently fine for these office holders. But to the people who live in the Sunset Park side, the Engardio-Melgar-Wiener message is, move aside.
1: Thank you for sharing your comments. Do we have anyone else who has public comment on agenda item number three at this time? And if you're waiting for your chance to speak, please line up to speak along that Western wall. Next speaker, please.
4: This is the third hearing about 230808. So far, there has been problems explaining what it actually does. The map in meeting number one is not the verbal description in the meeting agenda. Areas described in the meeting agenda are in the coastal zone. I would expect the sponsors and writers of 230808 to know this. I believe there should be sanctions from the sponsors for not addressing this need. I do not fully understand what 230808 does, neither do the sponsors, as meeting in number two. I do know that the area between Slope Boulevard, Eucalyptus, between 19th Avenue and Country Club Drive is an area suitable for more dense housing. There is good shopping. Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, Lucky's, and a popular farmer's market are nearby, as well as two shopping malls. The corridors surrounding this area are Slope Boulevard, 19th Avenue, and Sunset Boulevard. All have public transportation. There are less rent-controlled units in this area, making building easier. There are no mandates for affordable housing or affordable senior housing or senior housing in this um, proposition that I know of. This is simply a way for developers to come and build whatever they want without neighborhood environmental or or aesthetics. I believe all the people in favor of this are either paid, working for developers, or ignorant of what it says. If the city attorney's office had to look stuff up on how how can the average person even understand what they're in favor of? The idea that a senior would want to live in a market price unit over a corner store and pay HOA fees is absurd. The idea that downsizing to this type of living is wanted or needed is a lie. No one, it's no, not one established senior advocacy group has shown up to these meetings. This is about special interests speaker and Simon's campaign concluded. donations. Thank you
1: for sharing your comments with the committee. Could we have the next speaker, please?
21: History is repeating itself, redevelopment. The Malgar and Gardio proposed ordinance is a redevelopment and demolition of the Sunset Parkside neighborhood. In the 1970s, San Francisco did this to the Fillmore District and displaced many Black families. This redevelopment in the Sunset Parkside District will displace many Asian families, many middle class families, many firefighters, many teachers, many police officers, many nurses, many house painters, many small business owners, many plumbers, many middle class families. Please, could you not speak when I'm speaking? I would like your attention. That was very rude of you okay? You're displacing families because you're going to get the domino effect. You tear down a corner house and merge lots and then one house will sell to the next to the developers and prices will go down till you destroy the families. That's exactly what happened in the 70s to the black families of the Fillmore. Please do not repeat that ugly history in San Francisco. And please, Mr. Angardio when I'm speaking, please have the courtesy to listen. Thank you.
1: Speaker's time is concluded. Do we have anyone else who has public comment on agenda item number three at this time? Madam Chair.
0: Okay, public comment on this item is now closed. Uh, Supervisor Angardio, did you have comments?
18: I just wanted to mention that the the amendments we're talking about today, it's only amending the existing Family Housing Opportunity SUD that includes the well-resourced neighborhoods, which includes the residences where you and I have homes. So uh, we are included in this. So I just want to make that clarification.
0: Thank you so much, Uh, uh, Supervisor. So we do have an amendment today. Excuse me, excuse me, you're out of order, thank you. Um, Did you have an amendment?
18: So we're gonna add the, uh, and page 8, line 21 to 24. Do I need to read it in? Please. Yep, okay. Uh, So we are saying, uh, starting with line 20, the project sponsor has owned the subject lot for a minimum of five years if the site contains two or more dwelling units, or a minimum of one year if the site contains one or fewer dwelling units. Notwithstanding the foregoing sentence, a single-family home that contains an unauthorized unit shall be subject to the one-year requirement.
0: Okay, thank you so much, Supervisor Engardio, and I think that addresses the concern of President Peskin uh, uh, two weeks ago. So I will make a motion that we adopt that amendment um, and then that we move uh, the amended legislation to the full board.
1: On the motion offered by Chair Melgar that the ordinance be amended as presented by Supervisor Engardio and then recommended as amended to the Board of Supervisors, Uh, Vice Chair Preston. Hold on just a
0: second, did you have a comment? Okay.
1: (laughs) On the motion as presented by the Chair that the ordinance be amended and then recommended as amended to the Board of Supervisors, Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin, aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar, aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes. Thank you so much.
0: That was one motion, right, for both things. That's yeah. right. okay. I <laughs> Thank both you motions. so much. Uh, let's go. Thank you, uh, Supervisor Engardio. Let's uh, go ahead, uh, uh, Mr. Clerk, and we're going to call item five and six out of order because um, we have Supervisor Ronan here and she's got to go. So, <laughs> if, if we're going to call that out together. of order, yeah.
1: Agenda item number five is an ordinance amending the Planning Code and Zoning Map to create the Patrero Yard Special Use District and change the height and bulk limits at 2500 Mariposa to facilitate development of the Potrero Yard Modernization Project, adopting sequel findings, making findings of consistency with the General Plan and A Priority Policies of Planning Code Section 101.1, and making findings of public convenience, necessity, and welfare under Planning Code Section 302. Agenda item number six is an ordinance amending the urban design element of the general plan to facilitate the Petruro Bus Yard Project, adopting findings under CEQA and making findings of consistency with the general plan, eight priority policies of Planning Code section 101.1 and findings of public convenience, necessity, or welfare under Planning Code section 340.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Clerk. Uh, We are joined today by Supervisor Hillary Ronan. Thank
22: you. Thank you so much, um, Chair Mulgar for calling this out of order. And I just really wanted to come to committee to offer my enthusiastic support for the Petro Yard Modernization Project and for the items before us today. Uh, this state-of-the-art project was redistricted into District 9 in 2022, and I just wanted to note and thank Supervisor Walton and his office who did a ton of work um, on this project to get it where it is today. And it is uh, an honor to now sort of co-sponsor this project together um, with him, and I thank him for his co-sponsorship. The Potrero Yard Modernization Rebuild will combine the modernization of an outdated Potrero bus yard with new construction of hundreds of units of 100% affordable housing. It is a groundbreaking approach that is making good on our city's goal to use public land for our most pressing public needs. The Petrero Yard project will deliver on both sustaining our public transit system and providing much-needed affordable homes for our working families. I am grateful to SFMTA planning staff, the Petrero Neighborhood Collective, and Petrero Neighborhood Working Group for all of your hard work, and especially the robust community outreach you've done here. It is really quite exceptional. This project team has conducted over 140 public meetings, tours, and working sessions, and they have paid off. There is wide community support for this project, from residents with the nearby Friends of Franklin Square to Calle 24 Latino Cultural District and the American Indian Cultural District, the San Francisco Transit Riders, the Sierra Club, and many additional community leaders and organization who provided letters of support. I also just wanted to give a special thanks to Anna Herrera from my office, uh, who usually uh, comes to make these comments um, uh, on my behalf uh, because she's just been a staunch supporter as well uh, from our team. So thank you so much and I'm looking forward to hearing the presentation.
23: Good afternoon, President Peskin, Supervisor Melger, and Supervisor Preston. I'm Matt Snyder of Planning Department staff, and I'm joined by my colleague Gabriela Pendoa We're going to provide you a background of the um, of the ordinances before you. Um, these ordinances are associated um, with the Petrolia Yard Modernization Project. Um, Again, the project is to demolish the existing Petraro Yard facility at 2500 Mariposa Street in the Mission District and to construct a new state-of-the-art facility that would include bus maintenance, storage, repair spaces, as well as employee training and support areas. The project also significantly um, includes a housing component that would enable up to 465 units proposed as affordable that would be constructed in two uh, to three phases. The proposed new building would feature a podium for the bus facility that would be approximately 75 feet in height. And then when reach up to 150 feet in height for portions of the residential component, which would be both built adjacent to the PUS facility along Bryant Street, and then on top of the facility um, for the rest of the project. Um, I'll note that uh, the project essentially, the the project I'm describing is the main project, or what we refer to as the uh, the refined project. Uh, There is also a um, a variance that I will let uh, uh, Bonnie Jean, uh, Von Crow of MTA staff um, uh, uh, further describe Um, they will provide uh, a greater description of the project itself and the work that they've done with the community Um, I will let them do that. Um, I'll I'll describe the ordinances before you today. And there are two ordinances. I'll describe uh, the second one um, that's on your agenda. Uh, It's the general plan amendments. Uh, It would amend two maps within the urban design elements. Map number four, the urban design guidelines for the height of buildings, and map number five, the urban design guidelines for the bulk of buildings, uh, which currently have designations that would not allow the project as proposed. Um, The subject is within a P or public uh, land use designation, um, and in a 65 height and bulk district, uh, the P designation uh, generally does not allow housing and generally does not allow retail use, commercial uses, and of course with a 65X height and bulk uh, designation, it wouldn't allow the project uh, that's proposed up to 150 feet in some portions. Um, The second second ordinance the planning code text and map of is largely to create a special use district Specifically for this project and it essentially does four things Um, It allows housing in the p district through conditional use authorization or planned unit Authorization by the Planning Commission. Uh, number two, it allows commercial uses on the ground floor. These commercial uses would be generally consistent with the urban mixed use uh, zoning designation, and this is a, a pretty common designation within the area. Number three, it describes uh, specific development controls for these uses, and it also describes uh, parameters, uh, construction parameters, or development parameters above the 75 feet uh, for the portion up to 150 feet, including setbacks. Lot coverage and, and bulk restrictions. Finally, number four, the, the special use districts provide some special provisions for signage. MTA is, is proposing uh, a standalone sign on the Mariposa along with an uh, integrated, architecturally integrated window sign. Uh, these provisions would enable that. On January 11th, the Planning Commission unanimously approved both ordinances and recommended that you do the same. At that same hearing, uh, the Commission also unanimously approved conditional use or planned unit development authorization for the housing component. Um, Supervisors, this concludes my portion of the presentation. Uh, Me and Gabriella will be happy to answer any questions you might have. I'm going to now hand it over to uh, Bonnie Jean Von Crow of SFMTA who will give you a more in-depth description of the project and their work with the community.
24: Hi Supervisors, my name is Bonnie Jean Van Crow. I'm the Public Affairs Manager for the SFMTA uh, and we'll launch into a presentation. Thanks so much for giving us the opportunity to present a more um, full uh, description of the project. So the Refined Project, just to recap, is a four-story bus facility with housing and so the This maximizes the housing units and the affordability of the site. And that's the primary alternative that Matt was just talking to you about. We're entitling up to 465 units. And there are two types of housing at the site, the affordable family housing for those earning up to 80% AMI, Area Median Income, and then what's being termed workforce housing, which is for those earning 80 to 120% AMI. Next slide. So the EIR also studied a variant for paratransit, and the SFMTA views that as a backup use for the roof of the bus facility. Uh, during the PDA phase, we learned that the nature and timing of housing financing is different from the bus facility, with the housing needing more time. And so because paratransit is a transportation-related use, including this variant, actually allows the SFMTA to be able to fund upfront the increased structural strength of the roof that would be needed for housing to be built above it and also provide um, extra time for the housing to be built and then reimburse the SFMTA. So that's the key reason we studied the paratransit variant. Uh, We also looked at... um, Uh, As part of this variant, we also looked, you can see that there's 104 units of the housing on the Bryant Street frontage that still is included in this variant. And then in the event that the podium housing cannot be financed and built in a reasonable time frame, this backup does allow the roof to still be fully utilized for an important transit function for the paratransit fleet. Next slide. Uh, Public input has guided this project from the start. We've been engaging the community since 2018, which is when we established the Petrary Yard Neighborhood Working Group. Um, And feedback from the community has influenced everything from the design guidelines for the project to the housing affordability levels and the most recent designs we see today. Um, The project did receive 21 letters of support at the Planning Commission in January, and we've had over 150 project events um, over the years on this project project, next slide. Of course, the driver on this project is providing a new bus yard for the SFMTA, which will prioritize strong public transit, which is one of the most important tools we have to fight climate change. By improving efficiency and working conditions at the yard for SFMTA frontline staff, Buses can be repaired faster, which improves Muni's reliability for the entire community. And it is a key priority of the SFMTA to improve working conditions for our staff, which are currently working in a 100-year-old facility. Uh, The new bus yard will be phase one of the project, and it will accommodate 54% more buses, which Muni needs for its fleet. Next slide. Um, here you see the affordable housing, the family housing along Bryant Street, and also on the podium above the bus facility. It is up to 247 units and would be for those earning 80% or less AMI. Um, the developer team is currently working to apply for the state's affordable housing and sustainable, transportation, sustainable communities program to fund a portion of the project's affordable housing and the entitlements are needed for that application. Next slide. And then here you see the workforce housing above the bus yard. This is proposed up to 218 units for those earning between 80 and 120% AMI, and the SFMTA is working to create a preference for frontline staff for that housing. And you also see in this uh, visual uh, one of the retail spaces of three retail spaces that would be at the yard. Next slide. So uh, the project phasing, Matt alluded to, the bus yard is phase one, phase two is the proposed affordable family housing along Bryant Street, shown at the left, and then phase three is the affordable and workforce housing on the podium above the bus facility, which is shown at the right, the affordable housing is marked with an A, and the workforce housing is marked with a B. And then finally, this project supports active transportation adjacent to uh, Franklin Square by enhancing the city's existing 17th Street bikeway with a proposed protected class 4 bike lane on that block. Um, We're also improving a number of the crossings around the facility for pedestrian safety. And uh, this view shows the corner of Bryant and 17th where there's the SFMTA entrance, but then also there is a public restroom and a small retail space there as well, which is conveniently located across from the park. Um, And then finally you do see in the visual a a mosaic art opportunity which is uh, one of the opportunities that faces the park. Next slide. And here are both of the opportunities on the 17th Street side of the facility, that mosaic opportunity at the right, and then a large glass wall, which is not only a glass art opportunity, but also lets the public peek into the facility. They'll see the buses going up and down those ramps and keep that connection to the transit history of the project. Um, So that concludes my summary of the presentation um, for the project, and then I'd like to introduce, next slide, Chris, uh, Chris Harge from the Petrero Neighborhood Collective and Plenary Americas. To say a few words, uh, Petrero Neighborhood Collective is our developer partner on the project.
25: Thank you. Good afternoon. Chris Harge with Petrero Neighborhood Collective. Um, I just wanted to briefly introduce who the development team is. It's consisting of an infrastructure developer, which is Plenary Americas, which is where I sit, as well as three affordable housing developers, Meta, YCD, and Tabernacle. We're also uh, joined by a design team Arcadis and um, YA Studios, helping support the design of the bus facility and the, um, and the housing components, as well as a number of other consultants who are help- is helping us with cost consulting, schedule consulting, as well as communications. Next slide. Um, here's a quick overview of just how the bus um, or the new facility looks from um, 17th and Bryan Street. Um, I wanted to focus on particularly the five different values that are shown on this slide um, to help share at least a little bit of those values that have helped guide us through the design making process. Uh, Number one, partnership. We are actively partnering with the city to prioritize improving transit, address the critical need for housing, and provide a number of public benefits. This partnership is evidenced by our coordinating with city staff to ensure the project reflects the city's priorities by fostering exemplary design, conducting environmental analysis, preserving the city's unique heritage and encouraging a broad range of housing. Innovation. We are tasked with designing a fully constructible, seismically safe project within the established design guidelines that also respects community need for new affordable housing and public benefits that promote a safe and vibrant community. Number three, creating local economic inclusion. We recognize San Francisco's small businesses as a significant factor, significant sector for the local economy and form a backbone of its neighborhood, including the Potrero Hill and Mission Districts. We demonstrate our commitment to economic inclusion by including LBEs in our pre-development phase, and will continue to include participation in the design, construction, operations, and maintenance period of Potrero Yard. Additionally, we are prioritizing local hiring and community-based businesses in our retail program. Number four, racial equity. We know historically in the U.S. infrastructure has often often harmed BIPOC and low-income communities. This is why we are intentional about making this project, by making project decisions that promote equity. We believe that the MMRP included in the final EAR will create a much-needed bus yard and housing that supports the needs of this diverse city while upholding ideals around environmental and racial justice. And lastly, community voices. One example is that through our community engagement process, we heard loud and clear that Petrero Yard is a beloved community asset. That is why we have worked hard to promote a project design that celebrates SFMTA's unique history at Petrero, adds housing, activates 17th Street, and integrates an innovative, seismically safe design into the fabric of the community. Thank you.
24: And the SFMTA and PNC team are available for questions as well. Okay,
0: Thank you so much. Um, This uh, is a long time coming. I'm so glad that um, both uh, Supervisor Walton and yourself have been so hands-on in this project. I appreciate it. Um, I have no other questions or comments, uh, so if my colleagues don't, let's go to public comment on this item.
1: Thank you. If you're here for public comment on agenda item numbers five and six related to the Potrero Yard special use district and the bus yard project, then please come forward to the lectern at this time. Delaying for a moment to see if we have any speakers. Madam Chair, it appears we have no speakers.
0: Okay. With that, public comment on this item is now closed. Um, I Did you have any closing comments, Uh, Supervisor Ronan? We're all good. No, just thank you again uh, for the great
22: presentation um, and this exciting, innovative project. And I'm looking forward to
0: keeping it going. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. Uh, Then I'd like to make a motion that we uh, forward this item with a positive recommendation to the full board. Both items, Madam Chair? Yes, both items.
1: Very good, I'll record a motion from Chair Melgar to recommend agenda items five and six to the Board of Supervisors, and on that motion, Vice Chair Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. Member Peskin? Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar? Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes.
0: That motion passes, thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Ronan. Okay, uh, Mr. Clerk, let's go back to item number four, I think is. That's right. Yes.
1: Hmm. Agenda item number four is an ordinance amending the planning code to encourage housing production by exempting under certain conditions specified housing projects from the notice and review procedures of section 311 in areas outside of priority equity geographies, which are identified in the housing element as areas or neighborhoods with a high density of vulnerable populations removing the conditional use requirement for several types of housing projects, including housing developments on large lot areas and areas outside the priority equity geography special use district, affirming the planning department's CEQA determination and making public convenience necessity and welfare findings under planning code section 302 and findings of consistency with the general plan in the eight priority policies.
0: Okay, we have Mr. Starr here again. Welcome, Mr. Starr. Uh,
26: Thank you. So today uh, we had discussed some amendments that we were planning to add. Um, I believe we sent you the email. I also have copies if you need them, but I assume that you will have your own. Um, So the first amendment is on page seven, starts on line 12. Um, It will be adding a definition for what a planning entitlement application is. Um, I'll go ahead and read it for you. For the purposes of this section 311, a planning entitlement application means the application submitted by a project sponsor to the planning department. Provided said application has been deemed complete by the planning department. That includes the information necessary to conduct environmental review, determine planning code compliance, and conformity with the general plan. And that includes some amended or some friendly language that Supervisor Peskin added to it as well. Um, and then some other uh, amendments, just changing, uh, doing some correction work on page 8, line 6, Uh And then also um, adding, changing the uh, 3.11 criteria, starting on page eight, uh, line 11. It's not really changing, it's just, making it more clear, especially to our zoning administrator. Um, it shall now say um, any alteration to a building containing only one dwelling unit that both increases gross floor area of an existing building by at least 25% and results in a building having gross area of at least 3000 square feet. And the intention prior to this was to require sort of overly large homes to be subject to 311, but to allow for a modest increase. Um, and so that's what this language does. Um, And then there are some other just minor uh, amendments that the city attorney had found doing lowercase p's instead of uppercase p's and stuff like that. I'm happy to take any questions you
0: have. Okay, I have no questions. I don't know if President Peskin wants to make a few comments. Go ahead, President Peskin.
3: No, thank you for that, and thank you for accepting my suggestions on the definition of planning entitlement that are included here. The only other thing I was going to raise is that the mayor's constraints ordinance uh, added a clause uh, to Section 317 from um, Senate Bill 330 about relocation assistance, uh, which stated that only low-income households households are entitled to relocation assistance. And I have said before and I say again that I want to clarify that all households are entitled to relocation assistance under our rent ordinance. I think there's an easy, non-substantive way to put that in here. Um, That language is not drafted, but I've talked to the city attorney, and they can have that language ready, and we can add it when it gets to the full board.
0: Okay. Sounds good. Uh, Let's go to then public comment on this item, please, Mr. Clerk.
1: Thank you, Madam Chair. If you have public comment on agenda item number 4 related to housing production, please come forward to the lectern at this time. It appears we have been, we may have one speaker.
2: Hi, my name is Sharon and I'm a community planner with Tenchan Community Development Center. Um, we wanted to thank Supervisor Peskin for introducing amendments to the constraints reduction ordinance that would retain 311 noticing and allow a community driven process for developing objective design standards within the PEG SED. Um, after getting more clarification from planning staff regarding the application of 311 noticing PEGs and specifically Chinatown, we support the, the amendments as 311 noticing will continue to be a useful tool to protect our vulnerable communities.
3: Thank you.
1: Do we have any further commenters for agenda item number four, Madam Chair?
0: Okay, without public comment on this item is now closed. Um, I would like to uh, make a motion. Or did you want to uh, make a motion for your amendments, Supervisor? So moved. President? Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this the the motion that's being presented now are the amendments presented by the planning department, as well as incorporating additional changes from no. I think just they the were all.
3: Department. I think they were everything that was in Included. what Mr. Starr presented.
1: Very good, thank you for the clarification on the motion as offered by member Peskin that the ordinance be amended. Vice Chair Preston. Preston aye, member Peskin. Aye. Peskin aye, Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar aye, Madam Chair, there are three uh, ayes on the motion to amend.
3: I would like to make a motion to move the item as amended to the full board with a positive recommendation.
1: On the motion by Member Peskin, that the ordinance be recommended as amended. Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin.
3: Aye. Peskin, aye.
1: Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes once again.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, That item passes. Let's go, Mr. Clerk, to item number seven. And I thought Supervisor Safai was gonna be here with us, but he is unfortunately not. Let's go ahead and call this item.
1: We'll call agenda item number seven. Agenda item number seven is an ordinance amending the public works code to allow the use of micro-trenching to install fiber optic facilities and affirming the planning department's secret determination.
0: Okay, I think we have Nicholas Huff here from uh, Public Works. Welcome.
27: Good morning committee members. My name is Nicholas Huff, bureau manager for the public works Bureau of street use and mapping. Our bureau issues permits uh, for use and occupancy in the public right of way before you today is an ordinance amending the public works code to allow the use of micro trenching to install fiber optic utility facilities. The legislation seeks to explicitly include micro trenching as an approved method for telecommunications companies to install their facilities. Currently micro-trenching is an approved excavation method under our existing excavation permits. In July 2023, Public Works established micro-trenching standard plans details uh, through Public Works Order 208343. These standards include guidelines and procedures for exceptions. Today's legislative update to Public Works Code Section 2.4 states that Public Works shall not require any increase in requested requested width or depth of any micro trench, unless it specifically finds that the increase would be necessary to preserve and maintain the public health, safety, welfare, and convenience. In conclusion, this legislative update solidifies the inclusion of micro trenching within San Francisco's regulatory framework. It maintains the city's existing standards and obligations for excavators regarding pavement and sidewalk restoration while ensuring compliance with the American with Disabilities Act. And
0: thank I'm you so much, you Mr. Questions. Huff. Uh, I'm sorry. I, to... I'm available for questions. Okay, you, okay, thank you okay. so much. Um, I would like to acknowledge that we've been joined by the sponsor of this item, uh, Supervisor Safai. Supervisor, the floor is yours.
28: Thank you, Chair. I know today's a busy day, so I'm not gonna take a lot of time, and I appreciate, Mr. Huff being here from Public Works to summarize some of the work. Just wanna give a little context of this so um, people understand why. And I think you explained what micro-trenching is, so I don't need to get into that. But essentially it's a lot less invasive. It definitely has less impact on um, businesses, residents, and commuters, which we all know can be very disruptive when there's construction happening in communities. But the idea is to make the process faster to provide high-speed internet to uh, consumers, particularly those uh, that we've been talking about and I've been talking about from my office, trying to bridge the digital divide, uh, dealing with digital equity, so equal access for everyone to connect to high-speed Internet. Um, And we know uh, through through the Digital Equity Strategic Plan that there are many neighborhoods uh, in our city and thousands of families that still don't have access to high-speed Internet predominantly low-income communities of color. And we saw during COVID-19 in particular that there were many households uh, during that crisis that just couldn't access. It was students, there were people that needed access to telehealth. And so at the end of the day, this is really about equity and bridging that equity divide. And so we appreciate the work uh, from those in the high-speed internet provider community that worked with us. We also appreciate the work that Public Works did Um, And a lot of this is really codifying uh, state law. We had some original amendments, one of which we are striking today. And I think, uh, colleagues, you received those amendments. It's on page three where we strike uh, the language from line seven to line 13 that essentially is covered now in the departmental orders that were done from last year. And essentially what it does is it gives two options. You can either do a low cost, lower lower cost option, and not have to do uh, the entire area, or you can do a higher uh, cost option and just focus on the area that's been trenched. So the lower cost option would would be covering more surface per I think more likely curb to curb, right, um, in the area that it's been impacted, or or a larger area of surface that's been impacted by the micro trenching. It's not curb to curb, though, is it, Mr. Huff? <clears throat>
27: no not well, it depends yes yeah.
28: depends on the instance or, or the area it could be it's a moratorium
27: it would be curb to curb
28: right yeah right so there's two options that are provided if you if you look on page uh, uh the order number four in particular that's where it calls it out and that's in your packet on the micro trenching standard but so that's that's the crux of it uh, colleagues I won't take any more time um, appreciate you chair Melgar for getting this on I know how busy this agenda was, and, and it has been, um, but we wanted to get this done. We've been waiting uh, for some time, not from you, but from the work we've been doing in the community and working with the providers. So we just wanted to try and get it done today. So appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Supervisor Safai. It looks like uh, President Peskin has further questions.
28: Uh, What's number four that you said? Oh, there. if you look in the packet, uh, President Peskin, uh, when it talks about micro-trenching standards, it's micro-trenching stand- under that, there's a standard number I believe it's standard number four or wait on this one it's a little driven it's micro trenching standard bullet number two and then you go to item number C it talks about two standard details standard detail one and standard detail two and that gives you the language that talks about readily available construction materials Hot mixed asphalt and cement and sand slurry allows trench widths up to four inches. Standard detail number two requires a fiber-reinforced cementious uh, material to reinstall the restoration area and allows trench widths up to two inches. So it gives a couple of different standards for, for restoration. And obviously you can talk to the expert who can speak a little bit more. Oh.
27: <laughs> Engineering was, or the experts, we just enforce the, the rule.
3: <laughs> so, Mr. Hovell, we're all for installing fiber optic facilities in the least invasive way. This is already state law, right?
27: Yes, and we implemented these standards back in July.
3: And the state law was passed in 2021?
27: Uh, January of... January 1st,
3: 2022. Okay, so it was passed in 21, effective in 22. You then adopted your own standards and in essence all this is doing is codifying your general order
27: essentially yes
3: what's unessential about well
27: it? no i'm saying like now it is explicitly states in the code micro trenching is an available tool uh, the the complaint we heard is that no one knew that they were it was available so now it's just it's defined as an available tool.
3: got it um for there there for everybody to see in the public works code and then the way 2.4.3 is was introduced there was a subsection b that said the department may adopt such orders regulations blah 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 and then there was a sub 1 to sub b that said shall not require any increase in the requested width or depth of any microtrench uh, unless it specifically finds that the increase would be necessary to preserve and maintain public health, safety, welfare, convenience, and two, not requ- require any restoral or modification to any area outside the microtrench, provided that the microtrenching complies with the orders and standards. And Supervisor Staff ID now wants to wipe out that too. So what does that mean in practice?
28: Just so I can jump in for a second, the reason we did that, and I'm happy to let him speak, is because we introduced this while they were formulating their orders. Um, and in the amount of time it's taken to have this hearing, they've codified those orders. And so they believe, the department believes, it's, it's not, this is no longer necessary because it's covered in their orders. And that's why I was referencing the two options that were given, um, one that's less costly than the other and, and requires a little bit less surface area.
27: <laughs> that, that's basically it, yes.
28: So, I, I mean, the only thing
3: that gives me pause, and I don't, I don't claim to be an engineer or an attorney, is that the language that says that micro-trenching must comply with your orders, regulations, standards, specs, etc., has disappeared. I kind of like that language.
28: No, it's... But it's covering B, Chair. Uh, I'm scar- sorry, President Peskin. No, the department uh, may adopt such orders, regulations, standards, and specifications to allow the permittee. So I think it's referencing it there. But what is it that you would you want to have it?
3: Okay, look- no, 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 that works. Okay.
28: I at first, just to be clear, did not want to delete this language, but then once we understood that it was covered in the orders, um, we were we felt comfortable with that.
3: Okay, and that the we may the department may waive is also implicit in one above, where it says. Sorry, I'm working while I'm thinking here.
0: Okay, perhaps Well, President, the, wa- we the we'll wave to language went away, too.
3: I, I don't know. What, what what were you highlighting? Maybe we should talk to somebody who's qualified. <laughs> Counselor?
29: Sure. Deputy City Attorney Julia Guaco Nelson. There's other provisions of the excavation code that aren't reproduced here that talk about waiver of standards. And so the language is really duplicative. Um, they're just not in the way this ordinance was...
3: When an attorney says it, I feel comfortable.
28: (laughs) There you go. Okay, thank you,
29: President. That's who we
0: worked
28: with to draft the language.
0: (laughs) Okay, thank you, Supervisor Safai. Um, If uh, it's okay, let's go to public comment on this item.
1: Thank you. If you have public comment on agenda item number seven related to excavation by microtrenching, micro-trenching for
30: fiber, please come forward to the lectern at this time. Great, thank you. Cami uh, Blackstone from AT&T um, and I want, good afternoon supervisors and Chair and President Peskin. Um, yeah, we are very thankful to Supervisor Safai's office and also Supervisor Engardio for bringing this forward, especially to legislative Aid Esther Lee for her work on this, um, but uh, as you know, uh, AT&T definitely wants to build fiber out to San Francisco, um, and if permitted under the right circumstances, microtrenching will help us do that and other private entities as well. Um, As you know also, San Francisco's permitting can be a little bit challenging, and um, for it to be effective, we want to make sure that the microtrenching process is easier and not more cumbersome. So in order for microtrenching to achieve that potential, it's important not to impose any unnecessary or arbitrary requirements and one of those is the requirement to install pipe or conduit micro trenching often can work most effectively and minimize the trench work if it's just placed right into the trench so to that end AT&T proposes the following amendment uh, under 2.44 to delete a subsurface pipe or conduit for and that will allow the installation of just fiber cable Um, second to minimize the restoration time and expense we want to make sure there's a viable option to restore only the trench area not the rest of the street and the legislation used to have this requirement in 2.43 B which you mentioned um, but that language has been removed and instead it says trench only restoration might be available if we use a specific kind of fill, and we're just trying to understand the cost of that fill Uh, but anyway we thank you very much for bringing this forward and are supporting it conceptually right now thank you
1: Thank you for sharing your comments. Do we have anyone else who has public comment on agenda item number
0: seven? Madam Chair. Okay, Mm. public comment on this item is now closed. Uh, Did you have any closing comments, Supervisor No, thank you
28: colleagues. Uh, Appreciate all your work on this. And and as I said before, I think once we get this going, and I think this has been some time in the making to accelerate micro-trenching, it's really gonna help a lot of households that are without high-speed internet and do a good job of helping to bridge the digital divide. So I, I, would, so I would like your support, please.
0: Okay, thank you, Supervisor Safai. Uh, I'd like to make a motion that we amend the legislation as read into the record and forward the amended legislation to the full board with a positive recommendation.
1: On the motion offered by the chair that the ordinance be amended and then recommended as amended, those amendments being presented by Supervisor Safai. Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin? Aye. Peskin? Aye. Chair Melgar? Aye. Melgar?
0: Aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes. That motion passes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, uh, Mr. Clerk, um, uh, I'm going to call items 8, 9, and 10 now uh, together. Uh, because uh, they're all related uh, to uh, the same thing, I realize that it is three separate items, including a resolution, so uh, in order to accommodate all of the different things people may have to say about these uh, pieces of legislation, I'd like to give uh, three minutes uh, per commenter for public comment uh, on uh, all three items. Uh, So, uh, But with that, I'd like to welcome uh, Uh, Supervisor Chan representing District 1 here uh, who I will turn it over to after you call the items. Thank you. (laughs)
1: Very good. Agenda (laughs) item number 8 is an ordinance amending the planning code to require conditional use authorization for converting private parking lots or vehicle storage lots to fleet charging in all PDR districts, affirming the planning department's secret determination and making findings of consistency with the general plan and the priority policies as well as planning code section 302. Agenda item number nine is an ordinance amending the planning code to require conditional use authorizations for establishing parcel delivery service uses, prohibit parcel delivery services an accessory use, and revise zoning control tables to reflect these changes. It also makes secret determination findings and findings of consistency with planning code section 302 and 101.1. And then agenda item number 10 is a resolution supporting California State Senate Bill 915 uh, introduced by Senator Dave Cortese, which prioritizes local control in the decision to deploy autonomous vehicle services contingent upon an autonomous vehicle service company receiving approval by the California Department of Motor Vehicles and the California Public Utilities Commission and will prevent deployment in a geographic location until a local government passes an ordinance authorizing operations. Madam Chair, I have a memo from your desk requesting that each of the three agenda items that I've called be heard as committee reports and they may be sent to tomorrow's board meeting.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Clerk. Uh, Supervisor Chan, the floor is yours.
31: Thank you, Chair Malgar. I really appreciate uh,
0: you scheduling, not
31: only scheduled this item, but also uh, willing to agendize this as a committee report. This uh, was uh, first introduced last November, and then subsequently we have a substitute uh, version of this. Uh, it also went through the Planning Commission, and we had a very in-depth conversation about um, this legislation. Um, but the earlier version of this legislation was also before this body, uh, and again, full board with unanimous support uh, both as an interim zoning control sponsored by first sponsored by supervisor shaman walton for 18 months of interim zoning control then again by supervisor dorsey subsequently for another six months and it is set to sunset and the interim zoning control is set to expire on march 8th it's the reason why this is now uh, Schedule before you uh, to also as a committee report so that we can um, close the gap uh, of that expiration date of March 8. Um, this legislation uh, is really to establish parcel delivery services use um, where is or previously principally permitted. Now uh, we're saying that um, it's prohibited as a secondary use. Um, of course, we do have. Planning uh, department here, and they uh, you can you can hear from them uh, directly about um, what they recommend and also what took place during uh, planning commission. Um, but I was there uh, in person at planning commission and had uh, that in-depth conversation with the commissioners, uh, quite a bit of back and forth there. So as a result, um, that we have some amendments uh, proposed before you today. Um, I asked the committee to to move a series of amendments, but I'm gonna also have our city city attorney to uh, help clarify which sets of amendments are substantive and which ones are not. Um, But before that, I go in-depth into the amendments um, colleagues the goal and the idea of um, really start thinking about uh, parcel delivery services is really a way to think about the future of San Francisco in terms of our, our local economy. Um, is the idea of thinking about how we e-commerce is here, and there's no doubt about it. Um, it's really been here, especially a uh, boom during pandemic because many relied on delivery services. Um, but as we continue and see the future of our downtown, we see what e-commerce uh, to, you know, can do to local economy. We want to continue to protect small businesses. They are the backbone, not just our local economy, but definitely for our neighborhood commercial corridors. We also want to understand the impact um, of increased parcel delivery services um, in our neighborhoods. And with that, uh, is the reason why we now have this conditional use authorization legislation before you. Um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the amendments now, um, and so that uh, before, we, before we have a more discussion, you, you can shine in about what you think, shine in about what you think about these amendments. Um, we, we understand that partly with the interim zoning control sponsor, Supervisor Dorsey mentioned uh, concerns around educational institution. Uh, e-commerce activities and delivery service activities uh, around educational institutions. Um, and that's really uh, part of it that's actually impacting his district. Uh, we want to um, have a better understanding we, and we recognize um, not every business are the same. There are business that are retail formula and then there are our small businesses. And I would count cannabis uh, as part of that, we understand that, you know, having them all go through the same conditional use process to include CEQA is not fair. Uh, so we are suggesting a more s- simple conditional use process for um, bis- uh, businesses that are going to operate smaller than 5,000 square feet. Um, that is uh, li- list out on page 6, line 12. 12- through uh, 12 through 16 Uh, we do want to also clarify that you know there's some discussion about cannabis related business it was deemed by the way essential business during pandemic Uh, we we understand and recognize that so uh, we say that we're going to clarify that cannabis related business are not subject to the prohibition uh, on having the parcel delivery services as an accessory use and you will see that in both the long title and a page two lines 20 through 21 again page Three lines eight through eleven and page nine line through six to eight and page ten lines thirteen through fifteen. Um, we do want to also recognize that um, there are technical corrections recommended by the planning departments to conform with the existing planning code um, planning code structure page line uh, page two lines nine through ten. Um, so with that, uh, I just uh, want to make sure. Um, We know that uh, there are uh, also conversation around retroactivity date that is not listed at the uh, the current version. We would like to propose for it to have retroactivity of March 5th, um, which is expecting the second reading of this legislation, which I also expect its passage um, to, again, bridge the gap between the passage of this legislation and the expiration date of March 8th of the in existing interim zoning control. Uh, I do think that we have, uh, we may have our um, controller's office, or I think we have our economic uh, team here, I think somewhere, I'm not too sure, but to just, maybe not, Uh, I guess everybody's fine uh, (laughs) about the analysis of, there was also a conversation about economic and employment analysis. Uh, I want to have a brief discussion today about it as well. Um, I know that there's concern about what that could mean and what we could do. Um, what are the, you know, if we already have a CEQA, should we have these additional uh, analysis and conditions? I think they're a worthwhile discussion. I'm open to having those conversation. Um, but I, I think that it's critical to have those additional analysis, when in fact, uh, what I would love to also see is to have additional analysis uh, when it, that to come with the employment analysis to think about two things, um, a CU authorization for a facility like this, to consider an analysis around uh, artificial intelligence uh, as part of this operation. We, I would like to understand, you know, um, what is the percentage in this operation that is actually including artificial intelligence, and what percentage are actually people powered to maintain a facility like that. I would like to understand, you know, when we talk about delivery services, have vehicles um, delivering these products, I'd like to understand out of which, how many are actually people driven and how many are actually autonomous vehicle. Um, I think those are the worthwhile data to gather. If we can gather those information um, through this employment analysis, Uh, help us better understand how these facilities are actually operated. I think it's an added bonus for us to understand what is happening and how things are operating uh, in San Francisco. So with that said, I am going to turn it back to you, Chair, and uh, calling on City Department to um, provide additional presentation. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Supervisor Chan, and uh, thank you for your leadership on uh, these issues. I mean, we've seen uh, really big change uh, around our city. Uh, is as to how goods are delivered and the use of land around um, transportation delivery of goods uh, and it's a changing landscape. And so I appreciate your thoughtfulness and uh, the work that you've done with stakeholders and uh, regulators to get us to this point. Uh, President Peskin.
3: Thank you, Chair Milgar and thank you to Supervisor Chan. With regard to items nine and 10, I just wanted to briefly address item eight Uh, wherein uh, I have a non-substantive amendment uh, that would provide for a grandfathering date for projects submitted prior to January 11th, 2024, and I've circulated that to both of you.
0: Okay, thank you so much. Um, I don't have a formal presentation by uh, the departments, but we do have Veronica Flores, Oh no, I, we have Mr. Starr here um, for any questions, uh, as well as uh, Joe Sachi. Um.
32: Good afternoon, Supervisors Joseph Saki, Planning Department Staff. Uh, I'm presenting specifically on Item Eight. Uh, And the Planning Commission heard that item on January 11th and recommended approval of the ordinance uh, as written without modification. Uh, But during the Planning Commission hearing, Supervisor Peskin's staff presented on the anticipated amendments. And in their discussion, the commissioners were supportive of the intent uh, behind those amendments. And that concludes the commission report, and I'm available for any questions.
0: Thank you, Mr. Saki. Welcome, Mr. Starr.
26: Uh, thank you, Aaron Starr, Planning Department staff, standing in for uh, Veronica, who couldn't be here today. Uh, so the Planning Commission heard um, the uh, parcel delivery service ordinance on February 8th and recommended approval as proposed and recommended the board consider um, the following issues. One, amend the accessory use prohibition to exclude cannabis delivery. Um, there were some technical corrections to the code, to so remove the conditional use controls from sec- from the definition of parcel delivery delivery. Um, services, which is section 102, and revise the accessory use controls to match um, the accessory use prohibition included in section 102. Uh, Also incorporate the temporary partial delivery service exemptions from the current interim controls. Include an exemption for off-site uses from the idling signage requirement. Um, And then for smaller uses, amend the electrification to be a criteria for consideration rather than a condition. Uh, create a simpler conditional use process, and remove the additional studies. Um, Those are all for smaller uses. And then one thing that they um, sort of emphasized was that they found a more citywide comprehensive economic analysis may be more beneficial than a project-by-project economic analysis. So those were, um, it's a bit of an odd recommendation to approve as is, but to consider these other things, um, but that's what they wanted me to convey to you. So I'm happy to answer any questions.
0: Thank you, Mr. Starr. Um, so as I see no questions or comments from my colleagues, uh, let's go to public comment on this item. I will say again, we are taking public comment for all three of these items together, 8, 9, and 10. However, you get—you each of the public commenters gets up to three minutes uh, for all of these items. Uh, you don't have to take up three minutes, but if you need to, you most certainly are welcome to.
1: Thank you, Madam Chair. If you have public comment on agenda item numbers 8, 9, and or 10, please come forward to the lectern at this time, and if you're waiting for your opportunity to speak, please line up to, uh, to wait along the Western
33: Wall that I'm pointing out with my left hand. Please begin. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Could we, uh, We're we asking for the overhead projector to be on. SFGov TV, if you could go to projector. Oh, thank you. There it is. Okay. Thank you. Um, thank you again uh, for... Uh, to all of those who've supported us i'm mark gleason i'm here presenting on behalf of the our joint council seven and our president peter finn um, in december of 2022 crews submitted an application to the department of building inspection asking to use a hydrogen trailer at the address of 241 loomis to charge their vehicles because PG&E wasn't moving fast enough In response to the application, Stephen Kwok of DBI said that if it it was on wheels, it would be considered to be a temporary structure, meaning the hydrogen trailer, and it would not trigger a special review. Kathy Harold of the fire department didn't comment on it being a temporary structure and pointed out that the fire department, would be more concerned about the fuel being transported through the city and the gas catching fire and exploding, taking out a block of people and structures." That's a quote. When they submitted this uh, request, they did not contact the neighbors. The neighbors include a Montessori school only 200 feet away, as shown on this map, because the fleet charging uh, Code currently does not have a notice f- for a requirement to do so. President Peskin's amendment today would ensure that something <laughs> like this cannot happen again. On item number nine, we want to thank Supervisor Chan and all the co-sponsors of this legislation, and we ask for the entire board to support this legislation. And then finally, on uh, item ten. Um, with, in regards to SB 19, uh, this is an excerpt of Waymo's most recent application to the P, uh, CPUC. They clearly state that they intended to do, to delivery. Um, SB 19 will give the San Francisco, will give San Francisco the ability to regulate the conditions that AVs operate under in our city. Thank you very much and now we have our attorney, Mr. Ziblatt.
1: Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please.
34: Good afternoon, members of the board. Peter Ziblatt I'm land use counsel for the Teamsters Joint Council 7. I'll take these kind of sequentially. We'll start with fleet charging. You know, I've been deep into the planning code on this topic for a while now and you know, I have a detailed understanding of the code and how it works and today's proposed legislation to close the loophole is extremely important over the last two or three years there's been a last two years at least there's been a push by property owners consultants for autonomous vehicle companies and the vehicle companies themselves to seek changes in use through building permits to change parcel uses from from whatever it is at that moment to either vehicle storage or private parking lot with the sole purpose to be able to then file a subsequent building permit to establish fleet charging. And the reason of this, this odd sequence of building permit applications is to, or the purpose behind it is to avoid conditional use approval for fleet charging. This loophole will prevent that activity from occurring again. On parcel delivery service uses, and it's appropriate that they're both being considered actually sequentially today because in our minds, as Mark Gleason just alluded to, these two activities, these two uses, melt together. Autonomous vehicles will fleet charge in one location and they're going to engage in parcel delivery uh, uses in another location and so it makes sense that we are now uh, legislatively correcting some of the deficiencies in the planning code. Some critics have suggested that the CU criteria, the enhanced CU criteria, the Supervisor Chan's proposing this legislation is too much. It's asking parcel delivery service use applicants to do economic studies or or employment analysis, economic or transportation studies, and that's too onerous or difficult. I just want to remind the Board of Supervisors, you know this, that there are many uses in this city that require conditional use approval that also require enhanced conditional use criteria and analysis, nighttime entertainment, tobacco paraphernalia stores, large-scale retail, formula retail, all those uses require additional analysis, no different than what's being proposed here in the Chan legislation. So I urge the committee today to adopt both the fleet charging uh, loophole closing legislation as well as uh, extending the, turning the interim controls for parcel delivery service use, conditional use requirements and making them permanent with this enhanced conditional use criteria. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Peter Ziblatt, for your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please?
25: Good afternoon, members of the Land Use and Transportation Committee. My name is Jackson Nupier, speaking on behalf of the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce. The SF Chamber of Commerce expresses their opposition to the current form of the legislation proposed in Item 8. To meet our Climate Action Plan goals, San Francisco must provide sustainable, predictable businesses access to electrification that reduces carbon emissions from the transportation sector. Other cities often follow San Francisco's lead on sustainability practices. If this legislation is passed in its current form and might inspire similar restrictions elsewhere, making it harder for fleets of all sizes to go electric. This could also limit how many fast chargers be installed nationwide. Given these circumstances, the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce requests a continuance for Item 8 so that we can explore how this legislation would impact communities in San Francisco. Thank you.
1: Thank you for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please?
35: Hello, my name is Joseph Soya, Secretary-Treasurer of Teamsters Local 2785. Um, in regards to item 8, the fleet charging legislation isn't about a few charging spaces that any member of the public can use. It's about hundreds of vehicles coming and going at all times of the day, doing high-intensity uses such as parcel delivery. No matter where these sites go, they will have a large impact to the surrounding community through traffic congestion, noise, and pollution 24-7. There needs to be a detailed evaluation of how these sites will affect the surrounding neighborhood before they are allowed to be built. Fleet charging would not be given a free should not be given a free pass to set up shop wherever they want. Please close the loophole by supporting the President Peskin's legislation. In regards to Item 9, commercial uses are regulated in San Francisco. Parcel delivery needs to be regulated and carefully considered, especially in our neighborhoods. Our members are engaged in parcel delivery service, which in turn provides for an expansive and thriving commercial sector in our city. For a safe and fair work environment, we ask for a special review when it comes to granting planning changes for parcel delivery service. We support Supervisor Chance legislation and ask that you approve it. In uh, item 10, for the last few years, AVs have created dangerous conditions in San Francisco roads. They have driven through caution tape into emergency situations, blocked first responders, and attempted to drive into parades. As it stands, all San Francisco can do is complain and ask the state to do more because they can't even be ticketed. SB 915 will let San Francisco take control of the conditions that AV operators under in in San Francisco and let us create a safer San Francisco. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please?
36: Thank you, good afternoon, um, Chair Melgar, President Peskin and Supervisor, sorry, did I say president? Yeah, I said Preston, yeah, Preston and Chair Preston, thank you. Um, on item number eight on fleet charging, over the last year we have seen several sites slip through the loophole in the planning code and it's concerning that the planning department is seemingly avoiding the intent of the Board of Supervisors by approving these projects using this very loophole. The industries using fleet charging like autonomous vehicle companies such as Waymo, Zooks, Cruise, are rapidly expanding and developing with minimal regulation. Their impacts on worker and community safety need to be taken into account before approval is given. These companies are taking advantage of this very loophole and that's why we're asking that you please support President Peckston's legislation. On item number nine on the CU, two years ago, we worked with you to create the interim zoning controls stopping any new parcel delivery sites from getting approval until there were controls in place that addressed the rapidly expanding industry because of the increase of businesses like Amazon. These are the controls. The legislation addresses concerns from labor, environmentalists, and the local community. Parcel delivery is an important and specific craft that Teamster members work. These controls ensure that workers will be taken into consideration every time a parcel delivery use is created. We wanna thank Supervisor Chan and her co-sponsors for this legislation, and we're asking that this is supported. Finally, item number 10, SB 915, It's a no-brainer. In recent years, AVs have flooded our streets and used us as lab rats and guinea pigs. Because of this state legislation, we have no say in how AVs are released on our streets. The DMV and CPUC may think that these vehicles are suitable to be on our streets, but we have all seen firsthand how they aren't. They have run into and over people and have driven headfirst into events like APEC, where there are clear signs marking the street as closed. The legislation will give San Francisco and any other city they try to expand in the ability to stand up for themselves and create legislation around AVs. Please vote this resolution and support uh, SB 915. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please?
37: Good afternoon, Chair, President Supervisors. My name is Robert Sandoval, President of Teamsters Local 350. Uh, I rise today in support of President, Pe- President Peskin's legislation, which would close a loophole for the creation of fleet charging uh, uses without review. As you all know, the Teamsters' main priority is safety, and we've been pounding the table since day one regarding safety, and this loophole would create uh, a problem within the city, uh, and we are asking that you close that loophole. Uh, in regards to the conditional use, um, these controls have been used for years, Uh, for the concerns of labor, the environmentalists, local communities, citizens of the city of San Francisco. Uh, We recognize that there is a fast-paced changing e-commerce. However, there needs to be regulations in place to ensure that the citizens of San Francisco are protected. Um, So we urge that you support Supervisor uh, Chan's uh, legislation. Thank you. And we support
38: item 10.
1: Thank you for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please?
38: Good afternoon, Supervisors and Chair Melgar. My name is John Bouchard. I'm I'm with Teamsters Local 350 and Joint Council 7. I'm here to speak on behalf of our support for SB 915. AV companies have made San Francisco their home and have forced San Franciscans to babysit them without any way to punish them. The SFMTA can't give them tickets for anything beyond parking violations, and public safety has no way to prevent AVs from entering or getting them out of emergency situations. My members have been put in dangerous situations by AVs where they've had to perform dangerous maneuvers to avoid them, which not only put them at risk, but endangers other drivers around them. As an example, uh, we have a driver who on six different occasions on a one-way street has had to back down that one-way street uh, because he's blocked by an AV stuck at a stop sign. This is obviously... A dangerous situation and our members don't want to be put in those situations and neither do the residents of san francisco please vote for this resolution in support of sb 915 as the people who are having issues with avs should have the ability to regulate them thank you for your time and consideration
1: thank you for sharing your comments can we have the next speaker please
39: hello i'm trish suzuki buntra political director at teamsters joint council seven thank you supervisors for taking up Uh, these important issues not only to the Teamsters in California but throughout the nation as we have a whole AV legislative package. Um, Autonomous vehicles should not be pushed on the public in such a rush way because it's not only impacts jobs but also the safety of the public which is why we applaud Supervisor Chan's work on ensuring that we put in safeguards through her three pieces of legislation in particular I want to talk about the resolution to SB 915 San Francisco has been on the forefront of pushing for local control when it comes to the implementation of AV due to unfortunate incidents we hope that you join the cities of LA and the city of Oakland and the county of San Mateo in sponsoring this important piece of legislation that was created through the CPUC and DMV not listening to the city of San Francisco and the devastating results this bill will not only put the safety of the public first and put, let allow places like San Francisco that know its city best, city best to implement AV. Thank you for your time and consideration.
40: Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Kim Tavolone, San Francisco Labor Council. Um, absolutely in support, Cal Labor Fed is co-sponsoring um, SB 915. We are in total support of that for the parcel delivery. We all know what's going on with that. And I really wanna encourage you to really come up with a plan for charging before um, something like this were to roll out. Having had uh, family members hurt in lithium fires, lithium fires cannot be put out by the fire department. So when you're talking about putting numbers of lithium charged cars right next to each other, if one of them goes up, they're all going up. And the fire's just gotta burn out because there is nothing known to man that can put out a lithium fire. And I would strongly encourage you all to talk to fire department personnel about how hard it is to watch these fires go out. They burn hotter faster than any other type of fire. And we should have a comprehensive lithium battery uh, policy throughout the city before we would allow any of this to happen. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Do we have anyone else who has public comment on agenda item numbers eight, nine, and ten called together? Madam Chair.
0: Okay. Thank you so much, Mr. Clerk. With that public comment on this item is now closed. Supervisor Preston.
5: Thank you, Chair Melgar. Um, and I, I really wanted to just thank um Supervisor Chan and President Peskin for their leadership on uh, different parts of this package um, and really their, their ongoing work on, uh, on these issues. Um, and I do, I do see them as a package, and I see this as an area of law. We've talked about this so much at the board, right? This is an area of law where big money interests have uh, really bought a set of uh, rules and laws at the state level. Um, that have, um, to some extent, um, silenced local input, whether from local government, uh, from local labor unions, um, or from uh, just residents of the city who want to weigh in um, on on some of these pretty big changes in terms of autonomous vehicles, fleet charging, um, parcel delivery. And, and so, you know, I, I see this package as as, you know, there are areas where we can push back and try to uh, switch, shift the dynamic a bit, um, and I appreciate this uh, package doing that both on a uh, couple land use items, but also by pushing for the state law change in, uh, in SB 915. So I'm fully uh, supportive of this package. I appreciate the um, the Organized Labor, Labor Council, and Teamsters coming out uh, strong on these these items. I would like to be added as a a co-sponsor to all three of them, to item eight, nine, and 10. Uh, and I imagine this won't be the last time we are looking at uh, at at bills and it is only unfortunate that we cannot more comprehensively take these issues up in a real planning process that puts uh, workers and residents and their health and safety and their jobs at the center of this conversation but instead that we're always uh, dodging uh, preemption but uh, hopefully that landscape will shift in the meantime thank you again for all your work on these uh, President Peskin and uh, Supervisor Chan, and happy to be co-sponsoring.
0: Thank you. Uh, President Peskin.
5: Chair
3: Melgar, I would like to formally offer the aforementioned amendments to item number eight to footnote 24 that I previously discussed to have the grandfathering date inserted of January 11th,
0: 2024. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, Supervisor Chan, did you want to chime in before we vote on those amendments? Okay, let's go ahead and vote on the, uh, to adopt those amendments, Member
1: Peskin has offered a a motion to amend agenda item number eight related to fleet charging. On that motion, Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam
3: Chair, there are three ayes on the motion to amend. And then subject to Supervisor Chan's Comments. I would like to uh, amend item nine to add uh, the amendments that Supervisor Chan discussed with regard to uh, the simpler CU process for um, properties that are smaller than 5,000 square feet to clarify that cannabis-related businesses are not subject to the prohibition on having uh, parcel delivery, delivery services as an accessory use and include the technical conforming corrections.
1: And this is related to agenda item number nine. I'm recording a motion to amend as offered by member Peskin on that motion, Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin? Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar? Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes on that motion to amend agenda item number nine.
3: And then, Madam Chair, I would like to duplicate that file and add a... Effective date of March the 8th and continue that item as amended one week. Wait, hold on.
0: Okay, go ahead, uh, Deputy City Attorney, please.
6: Um, Deputy City Attorney Ann Pearson, I believe, is there another amendment that to be made to this beyond the effective date? So, there is a consideration
31: for the, instead of the secondary in, uh, education institution, um, that um, Supervisor Dorsey would like to correct it to be education institution, but it sounds to us, or uh, I think um, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, but because then that is quite expensive, um, and therefore the legislation has to be, we refer back to Planning Commission with that um, amendments of education institution. so we thought We wanted to make sure as proposed, the motion proposed by uh, President Peskin to uh, have the retroactivity date and then continue for a week because it's a substantive amendment. And then at that time when we come back, we will duplicate that file and then (laughs) re-refer the duplicated file to Planning Commission with the discussion of expanding the um, education institution at Planning Commission, (laughs) but move forward with the Um, retroactivity date
0: okay do you get that mr. clerk so
1: the agenda item number nine has been amended now once we're going to duplicate it and then add an amendment and then continue that amended item an additional week to March 4th I will record a motion first from member Peskin to add that amendment for the March 8th date On that motion to amend the duplicated version now with the March 8th date, Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. There are three ayes on that motion to amend the duplicated item, which has now been
3: amended twice. And continue the item one week to March 4th.
1: On the motion offered by Member Peskin to continue the duplicate item twice amended to the March 4th, 2024 Land Use and Transportation Committee meeting, Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin, aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar, aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes once again.
3: And now I'd like to make a motion to send the original file as amended to the full board with a positive recommendation as a committee report. And I may have neglected to say on item eight that it needs to be sent to the full board as a committee report.
1: Thank you, we'll take them serially. So for agenda item number nine, which has been amended, I have now a motion offered by member Peskin that it be recommended as amended as a committee report to tomorrow's board meeting. On that motion, Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes on that motion. Then, returning our eyes to agenda item number eight, related to fleet charging, which was amended by a previous motion. Now I'll record a motion from Member Peskin that that item be recommended as amended as a committee report to tomorrow's board meeting. On that motion, Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes
3: on that motion.
0: Thank you, and please add me as a co-sponsors to uh, items eight and nine. Thank you.
3: Do, you want to do that? And then I would like to make a motion to send item 10 with recommendation as is, no amendments as a committee report for hearing tomorrow.
1: On the motion offered by Member Peskin that agenda item number 10 be recommended to the Board of Supervisors as a committee report. <coughs> Vice Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes on the motion to recommend as a committee report.
0: Okay, thank you. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, Thank you, Supervisor Chan, congratulations. Thank you. Okay, finally, um, thank you. Uh, Finally, we are at our last item. Uh, Please call uh, Mr. Clerk. Thank you, just a moment,
1: I'm catching up with my notes.
0: It's number 11. Thank you so much to uh, members of the public that are here for this uh, hearing uh, for your patience.
1: Agenda item number 11 is a hearing to discuss the recurrent power outages that were unrelated to weather starting in early January 2024 that impacted neighborhoods in District 7 and the extended power outages as a result of the storm starting on February 3rd, 2024, that have lasted beyond 48 hours, causing major disruption to residents, schools, and businesses citywide.
0: Thank you so much, uh, colleagues. Thank you so much uh, for being present at this hearing. I called it today uh, because even prior to the storm earlier this month, our neighborhoods had been dealing with uh, recurring um, power outages. So San Francisco and uh, West Side residents have struggled with uh, climate change and the changing weather patterns the last two years. Um, and it has led to what feels like an increase in power outages. So Brotherhood Way, West Portal, Mount Davidson, Manor, Westwood Park, Forest Hill, Forest Hill Extension, Sherwood Forest, Parkside, Mira Loma, and Golden Gate Heights struggled throughout through outages this year, uh, and we do have more storms coming uh, this week. I am interested in hearing from PGE. Thank you, Ms. Dilder, for being here today with us. Um, uh, I'm interested in hearing uh, from them from PG&E about the outages starting in early January of this year that impacted neighborhoods on the west side and other parts of the city, um, and also the extended power uh, outages um, as a result of the storm uh, starting on February 3rd of this year. We received dozens of emails and texts, and this is what we uh, gathered. Seniors clearly are the most vulnerable population. Uh, To outages, some went as many a seven days without an ability to uh, preserve food, cook, or heat their homes. Within that group, seniors uh, with medical issues are the most vulnerable. People were unable to charge their electric wheelchairs, hearing aids, CPAP machines. We heard from families that struggled uh, with working from home uh, in child care centers that had to close, uh, leaving caregivers in a lurch. We also have families uh, dealing with hundreds of dollars uh of of uh cost because of food Spoilage. I also um, heard many of these from many of th- these constituents while I held office hours uh, last week at Park Merced. Um, in fact, just last Thursday, my own neighborhood <laughs> experienced an outage during the day without warning or an explicable cause. The outage impacted over 6,000 neighbors, uh, including the MTA and SFUSD facilities and we understand that the power goes out because of storms and the trees uh, coming down, but we're curious as to what is happening with these outages not related to the weather and what it says about our long-term infrastructure, particularly on the west side, where we are planning on adding more units of housing. So secondly, while power outages due to storms are unavoidable, when customers are out beyond a day i want to know what the protocols are and what the respo- what responses are in place to support residents businesses and service providers because it really felt like you know we were abandoned Um, And what does it mean for future disasters? If we can't manage with these storms and they're getting worse and there's more wetness and our our trees are suffering from drought and then they're coming down, what does it say about all the wires that are out there on the west side, not underground? Um, And we also are joined by uh, neighbors who... felt passionately enough to make it down here and wait for a couple hours uh, for this hearing. Um, And we heard from many customers who are not able to attend today but are watching and waiting for some answers from PG&E. So with that, um, I'd like to uh, welcome up uh, Rosie Dilger uh, with Government Affairs from PG&E. And uh, hopefully you will present some information that we need. Thank you and welcome for being here. Thank you Miss Dilger. Mr. Carroll? What's going on? Okay, why don't we take like a five-minute recess, I'm so sorry about that, you guys. I know you've been waiting a long time. Let's take a five-minute recess, we can uh, figure out the technical issues, and we will come back. So we will be back at exactly uh, 421,
19: okay? This
0: All right, we're back uh, thank you I uh, think sorry about the technical issues uh, Ms. Dilger are you ready to go okay turn on your microphone I think
29: okay hi my name is Rosie Dilger and I am the local government affairs representative for PG&E in San Francisco I'm also joined by my colleague Sarah Yule who is the manager of government uh, affairs for the Bay Area I'm here today to talk about the pre-storm outages in january of this year as well as some of the extended outages and storm outages in relation to the february 4th storm uh, in january 2024 leading up to the february storm there were 80 planned outages across san francisco some of these were for capital projects uh, reliability and system hardening as well as general maintenance We've had 77 unplanned outages. And as you can see on the screen, we have some for vegetation, that was four, three substation, 25 overhead, 13 underground, six other, and unknown is 21. And you can see the percentages on the graph. Uh, Additionally, I wanted to share that of these outages that are unplanned, uh, 22% um, were five minutes or less and in terms of 12 or pl- 12 plus hours, it's 4%. Uh, everything in the middle is uh, between five minutes and 12 hours. That's 74%. All right. Did I have? Oops. Sorry. Uh, I want to move on to some of the storm stuff. Uh, for storm preparation, PG&E meteorology operations forecasted Category Five for outages in the entire PG&E territory at the peak of the storm. Ahead of the storms, PG&E stages, power poles, power lines, transformers, and other electric equipment at yards throughout the service territory, including the Bay Area, in preparation to restore power to affected areas safely and as quickly as possible. Local PG&E operations emergency centers activated in impacted regions, including this one, to more efficiently allocate crews, materials, and other resources to restoration efforts. In order to do this, we had to coordinate with uh, the city and county of San Francisco and many departments and agencies. We have a public safety specialist embedded in the Department of Emergency Management during these activations. pg also coordinates with Public Works, Recreation and Parks Department, SFPUC, and others. We have customer outreach specialists that are updating schools, hospitals, and other critical customers and communication and updates to elected officials and city and county of San Francisco departments and agencies. Storm impacts. This storm was the third largest single-day storm impact in PG&E history in terms of outages. Over 688,000 customers were out, um, sorry, had outages at the peak across the entire territory for PG&E, and over the entire course of the storm, there were 1.85 million customers that were out. In San Francisco, the peak of our outages was approximately 20,000, and just for some perspective, the following day by um, 8 a.m. in San Francisco, um, of those 20,000 customers, the customers remaining without power was uh, 4,692, and that is by no means insignificant. That is still a lot of customers, but for comparison in the graph to this side, in terms of our Bay Area uh, neighbors, their numbers are much, much higher. And again, I just want to emphasize that that's by 8 a.m. Than on Monday morning, which is truly uh, not, not no small feat and took a lot of coordination with the city um, and a lot of people and crews doing overnight work. These are a couple of pictures of uh, San Francisco, which is almost shocking to me. Um, and just as an example of the kind of damages that we had territory-wide, uh, 2,839 conductors, 946 poles were damaged. As you can see, 485 cross arms, 378 transformers, and 195 pieces of additional equipment. I also want to talk about the phase of restoration. I know that there have been a lot of frustrations for people in the storm outages who were out for a very long time. Um, and in a storm such as this magnitude, it really takes uh, a system-wide and local approach. In order to assess our damages, the first thing that we need to do is make safe, gain access, patrol and assess, repair and notify, and then restore and notify. And I have a little bit more to share on that. So making safe. The so storm conditions are in progress, and what that means is if there are active damages, if we have fallen trees, we're not able to even get to them until we're able to make sure that it's safe, and that's coordinating with local police and fire departments. Once we're there, we can. Uh, sorry, the next priority is to gain access, and that's when storm conditions have lifted, and PG&E is isolating damaged areas and rerouting power to restore customers. The next step is patrol and assess. When weather conditions have improved PG&E is assessing damage that needs to be repaired before we can restore power and in doing that assessment uh, excuse me doing that assessment we're unable to provide very much information in terms of restoration because we need to know the damage in order to know the work that needs to be done and that's repair repair and notify PG&E is then making repairs to damaged equipment and when the repairs are complete we'll be able to restore power as you can see in this photo this is a down tree and down wires that was one of the areas that ex- experienced ex- uh, sorry, extended outages. And this is the kind of case where as our crews were patrolling, there are serious safety issues here just to address it. And that took a lot of coordination with Rec and Park and with um, DPW in order to access and assess damages um, with tree removal in particular. And then the final step, of course, is to restore power um, and notify affected customers. Something I also wanted to share is that we do have programs and services available to our customers. Um, Many folks I'm sure have seen uh, that they got a bill credit through the safety net program. And that's for anyone whose power went off for 48 hours or longer due, due to severe storm events like this one. Um, I also add, and I um, excuse me. I'll also add that that is an automatic payment. Whereas, if there are claims for food spoilage or damaged uh, or any other damages, we do have a claims process for that, um, and that will uh, require you know, submitting receipts and whatnot. But um, this one is automatic. But there's still a claims process for people that have suffered more damages. Uh, We also have a lot of uh, resources for seniors. We partner with the California Foundation for Independent Living Centers to offer support for older adults and people with disabilities through the Disability Disaster Access Resources Program, as well as the California Network of 211, who can connect customers to resources in their local communities. We also have help for vulnerable customers. Medical needs might qualify you for a vulnerable customer status with PG&E. We also have programs um, to Sorry, for uh, small generators or battery programs, um, you can call that number to see if you qualify. And, all right. Additional customer care, there's the outage, mat, outage map on PG&E.com. We also do notifications, and customers can sign up for text alert or other ways they'd like to be contacted by setting their preferences uh, in their accounts. And. Even if you haven't signed up for things, um, we do a round of calls as we did in this last storm event. And for those who are uh, experiencing extended outages, we also had live calls going out to those neighbors who were impacted for for several days. As I said, we have a claims process uh, that includes food spoilage or property damage. And uh, again, that's the customer service number. And just to wrap things up, I want to end on safety. Uh, PG&E encourages customers to have a plan and prepare for power outages, and above all else, stay safe. You can go online for some of our preparedness tips. Uh, as a reminder, down and uprooted trees can disrupt subsurface infrastructure, including gas lines, so if you smell gas, please call it in. And especially in this storm, we had a lot of uh, emails from uh, Elected's office about their constituents seeing downed wires and the first thing to always do is assume it is energized and extremely dangerous do not touch or try to remove it and keep children and animals away report downed power lines immediately by calling nine one one and by calling PG&E at 1-800-743-5002 open up for questions
0: okay thank you Ms. Dilcher I really appreciate all that information so um, Uh, The first question I have for you is, um, you know, so much of what you were talking about, those 77 unplanned outages, uh, majority seem to be aging infrastructure is is one of the things that we, you know, keep dealing with. And um, it's particularly hard for folks to take uh, on the west side because we also just got the first of, like, the bills, you know, after Mm -hmm. the rate increases. Um, And it's expensive. I mean, we're paying more per kilowatt hour than folks in Southern California by quite a bit. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that relationship between the increases and the infrastructure or if there is a relationship because it's you know it's hard to take when you get this bill and seeing how much money folks are paying in addition um, to what they were paying just a few months ago and then also seeing that we have no power
29: absolutely Uh, one thing I want to start with is that in terms of aging infrastructure the way that we prioritize the work that gets done is yes the age of the equipment and the life cycle Um, with routine routine inspections, um, as well as safety priorities, and also uh, regular vegetation management and responding to outages when there have been damages. In terms of how this relates to the rates that have gone up, uh, I absolutely feel and experience the same thing. And a lot of what our rates have gone up on is to invest in infrastructure to improve our, our systems. And much of that is also, though it's not felt in San Francisco, we are doing 10,000 miles of undergrounding throughout the territory to stop wildfires. And maybe someday there will be undergrounding um, in our communities because it is absolutely very inconvenient um, to have outages that because we have wires um, in the air and around trees.
0: Right, but we're all paying the rate increases, you know, uh, including yeah. So. uh, Is there a a relationship, I mean, can you say when it is that it will be our turn uh, to do that aging infrastructure uh, replacement?
29: Well, the aging infrastructure replacements are happening on a regular basis. That's not the same as undergrounding. Undergrounding would be an entirely different um, and new systems as opposed to maintaining the ones that we currently have.
0: Okay, sounds good. You know, uh, I think the, the frustration is that on the west side, we happen to have just, you know, so much more of it. And we are paying the increased rates, and we are planning for uh, densification and having more folks on the west side next to transit. And so, uh, you know... Like I would like some idea in terms of uh, a timeline for uh, when there is um, replacement of the infrastructure to accommodate not just the current population mm-hmm. but future population, because, you know, like people are getting their bills and we see this increase, and it'd be nice to know like where we're going with all of this.
41: Hi. Hi, Sarah Yole with PG&E, Local Government Affairs. Um, so I'm happy to take that back and to get more detailed information on your district in particular as, a, as to when we're going to be doing work on the infrastructure in your area, but we're not prepared to answer that question today
0: okay I appreciate it and I will follow up because you know my district is one district but it is the largest district geographically right and so we see you know we have a lot of trees for sure and I'm interested in the collaboration with other city departments but you know because we have plans for our future it's really important that we give our residents you know some idea about where we're going with all this um okay so uh, thank you so much for the answer we will follow up so I'd like to know um, what protocols we have in terms of your work with emergency management, DPW. You mentioned Rec and Park. Um, you know it specifically, we got a lot of calls and texts from seniors. I know that during the pandemic, uh, the city supported uh, NERT and uh, the resilient, um, you know, neighborhoods folks put together lists of seniors, uh, people who um, you know have mobility issues, who may need support uh, in terms of food or medicine if there's something that happens. So um, I'm wondering if you could talk about the collaboration and how uh, if there is an extended outage, either planned or unplanned, but once you know it is, how to make sure that we support our most vulnerable folks.
29: Uh, We have a lot of programs for seniors and customers that are medical baseline or are self-identified as vulnerable. For seniors, I mentioned before, we partner with other, um, other groups, but we also have a lot of coordination, as I mentioned, with Department of Emergency Management and other city agencies. One of our public safety specialists sits with Department of Emergency Management as soon as an activation happens, like it did in this storm sorry, um, and they share information in real time across DEM and pg and as well as the coordinating agencies. For instance, when we had a down power line because of a, a broken tree or down pole and we needed to make sure that it was safe, we were coordinating with um, Rec and Park and Public Works in addition with DEM even just to identify who owned the tree and which, de- which crews would be going out to, to make it safe for our crews to enter. In terms of help for seniors um, and those who are self-identified as vulnerable or medical baseline, we have a lot of, um, sorry, programs that you can find on our website, Um, some that can, if you qualify, you can get a generator or um, battery packs um, and, the only thing I'll add is for long
41: duration outages that are lasting more than 48 hours we do partner with the local food banks to also provide food but we partner and give funding to these local organizations that Rosie mentioned to provide support because they're already here and doing community we're not going to do it any better than the folks that are already
0: here providing those services yeah and that was my question specifically so mm-hmm. how, how does that happen so you have these partnerships and that's Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, But how, if if folks have not self-identified to you, you know, I'm in this category or not, but, you know, they are on the list uh, for the neighborhood nerd, for example. How does that person then access the resources? You know, I just want to ask how we leverage the, the work that the city has on already mm-hmm. in identifying those vulnerable populations who may or may not be on your list because they may not know that you have that program
41: that is a great question and maybe your folks can coordinate with us on that like we know what we know when we have the information that we have Right, and we work through that information, and we're working with the California Foundation for Independent Living Centers. There's a phone number that folks can call. We give information out, like we send it with folks with their bills. We have our commercials, so we're you know through different mediums on social media, on Next Door, we give that information. But if there's a way, we can work with our PSS to make sure that that coordination is happening, and Rosie can work with city staff to also make sure that's happening. Thank you. So I'm
0: asking that you do do that uh, because you know. Uh, you are a company that provides, you know, a product and services, but Mm -hmm. you're also a utility. That's just essential. I mean, people can't, uh, you know, survive since some people uh, are in a very vulnerable situation. And, you know, leveraging what we already have, I think is good for your business, not just, you know, the fact that people's lives, you know, are at stake in all of this. So I'm hoping that we can um, have that part of it. You know be a better coordination we will speak to emergency management about it but you know I think it's really important uh, in terms of the trust in the community that you leverage the resources that are here already
41: okay and again I think we are and we will make sure that that's happening more but we do give funding and we're partnering with the folks that are here in the city and doing that work but we will
0: double check to make sure how that coordination is going thank you so the last thing that I will just say before uh, you know, my colleagues may have uh, some questions is um, about your website. So when the um, outages were happening, you know, there's that map. Sometimes it corresponds, sometimes it doesn't. But I really wish all of the information were were in like you know that one page. All of the things that you mentioned in terms of you know the automatic payment or where to go if your claim is higher than a hundred dollars, you know, and what the requirements are for reimbursement, like all. All of those things, if that were all on the same site, it would be really, really great because it was a little bit difficult to navigate.
29: Yes, I can can agree. It can be cumbersome because there's so much information and actually so many resources. Um, We do have multiple pages just because that would be a lot on one page, but I'm happy to send you the links um, and potentially try to reduce that down so it's easier to access. Uh, I do want to go back to the last comment about NERT in particular. I am also certified in NERT. And I think that's a great question—one that we can definitely um, work with Department of Emergency Management on. And also, since that program goes through SF Fire, I think coordination there would be helpful.
0: Yes, great. Thank you, Ms. Dilger. Okay. Uh, if there's no questions or comments uh, from my colleagues, um, let's uh, go to public comment on this item. Mr. Clerk.
1: Thank you, Madam Chair. If you have public comment on this hearing regarding Pacific Gas and Electric Company's response to the recurrent and extended power outages, agenda item number 11, please come forward to the lectern at this time. And if you're waiting for your opportunity to speak, you can line up along that western wall of the room. First speaker, please, come forward.
42: Hi there, Mr. Clerk, Chair Melgar, Supervisor Preston, and President um, Peskin. reps, Thank you for being here. My name is Patricia Martell. I'm a resident on Casitas Avenue in Sherwood Forest, and for the past four years living there I have been conditioned to expect continual power outages. I've had more power outages living on Casitas these four years than I've had living in all of my other homes combined, including St. Francis Wood, Lone Mountain, and the marina these aren't just frustrating power outages lasting a couple of hours. Can you speak into the
0: mic because you're coming in and having, to Okay, Thank sorry you. about
42: that. They are not just frustrating power outages lasting a couple of hours, but rather on the order of days. I did submit claims, by the way, twice and got rejected saying that it was, you know, not due to PG&E's control um, and their negligence. Uh, it's Incomprehensible and unacceptable, and something must be done about this. During the summer of 2022, I convinced a PG&E inspector to survey the trees growing in the easement behind my property, which interfere with these power lines. And his response? It would have to be pretty gusty winds to cause problems. And he declined to do anything about it. We are on Mount Davidson, the tallest hill in San Francisco. It gets very windy on our hill. Sure enough, that following winter season, we had a power outage lasting two days. And in the middle of the night, under stormy conditions, pg emergency crews, they hacked away at those very same trees that I was concerned about, and they left behind an incitably mess. But this, however, was still not sufficient. And early this month, Sunday, February 4th, around 3 p.m., that's when we lost power, and we did not get it back until Wednesday at 5 p.m., 74 hours. pg emergency crews have told me that our particular lines and equipment are wholly outdated and in need of Speaker's a serious time upgrade. Speaker's is
1: concluded. Thank you for sharing your comments to the committee. Please,
42: underground. Thank you.
1: <clears throat> can we get the next speaker, please?
43: My name is David Salem. I live in the same neighborhood as the pre- previous speaker, and I can uh, vouch for her description of, what, of the electrical service in that particular area. And I want to thank all of you for your for your time devoted to this um, problem particularly the supervisors who don't represent the windy west side and supervisor Melgar thank you very much for your leadership on the issue just three quick points and a request Uh, point number one is that uh, we now are in a situation where we've got hurricane force winds as I understand it literally off of our coast this may be a situation that calls for uh, providing greater prioritization to capital expenditures that will harden urban transmission lines. Um, Second, I I just want to strongly suggest that if if it's not being done already, that PG&E closely track those neighborhoods that are repeatedly experiencing multi-day outages. Uh, I think there have been four outages of three days or longer during the two and a half years that I've lived in this particular area. And then lastly, I noticed that the, um, the criterion that was uh, mentioned in the agenda for this particular item talked about outages of 48 hours or more. Uh, I just wanted to suggest that that be lowered a bit towards 36 or 24 only because I've found it very difficult to buy a, a battery with enough capacity to power the medical equipment that I need for more than a 24-hour period. The request is just that perhaps Supervisor Melgar, your staff could facilitate uh, direct communication between us and the government affairs folks at PG&E. So, uh, I think some of this stuff can be improved with some just more direct uh, communication. Thank you.
1: Thank you for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please?
44: Good afternoon, supervisors. My name is Richard Brandy. I live in West Portal, and I want to. I have two specific requests, and maybe they of PG&E that maybe can get back to supervisor. Uh, uh, our little area of 2,100 customers was uh, had an outage on January 5th, and 9th, and 19th. That, according to Representative Julie at PG&E, were not due to the weather. Was not due to a car hitting a pole. It was due to a broken conductor wire on the ground. And according to Julie, this happened on the same circuit, but not the same pole uh, on Yoloa Street at about 14th Avenue. So I'd like to ask pg e if, if they could get back to you, when are they going to repair the circuit at 14th Avenue and Yoloa? Since we obviously have a problem, and it's not weather related, and it's not due to global warming or anything else. And then second, um, there is a, Sarp pg has a lot of programs, the Portable Battery Program, the Generator Battery Rebate Program, and there's some other ones. When I went on the website, San Francisco County is not eligible for any of those programs. So I would uh, request that, we, that San Francisco County be included because evidently we're uh, becoming as unreliable and prone to outages as the rural counties. And if PGE could get back to you on that as well, what it would take, and I'm sure you could do it through advice, uh, it's an emergency situation, I'm sure you could file by advice letter to the commission. It wouldn't take, shouldn't take too long for that. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please?
45: Hello, my name is Yvette byrne Carson, and I live at 230 Casitas Avenue, San Francisco. And um, before this recent power outage, I was without power last year for 41 hours, just my house. Called PG&E, oh, we'll get to it. Lost everything in the freezer, that's fine. No big deal, that's okay. But this time, three days plus, I have an elderly neighbor, she was on her own for 24 hours, 95 years of age, stuck, couldn't get down to her bedroom because she has one of these electric chairs. My husband grew up in this house. We've lived in the family home. He grew up, he remembers occasionally it would go off for a couple of hours because we are very high up. Um, This is 2024. These lines are archaic. They are ridiculous. I'm actually concerned in case of danger because of trees and stuff. And PG&E really do not care. I'm sorry. I've called them. They just say, oh, you know, this is it. It's a storm. We we lose power without a storm. And In the 19, late 90s, we were supposed to have. My husband told me this. I didn't live here then. My husband was told me that there was a bond supposedly to get these lines buried, and to be finished in the early 2000s. We've been totally forgotten and ignored. Our PG&E monthly bills are ridiculously high for what we receive. It's absolutely ridiculous. And there could be a tragedy here for some elderly people who, when the power goes out, they don't have phones. You know, they have landlines, they don't have computers, and how can we get onto PG&E website? So I think they need to be taken care of immediately, and my fear is if the lines are being neglected, what about the gas? We really don't want another San Bruno horror story. Thank you.
1: Thank you for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please?
32: My name is Peter Schweickart. I uh, live in Monterey Heights. Thanks so much for um, putting this on and giving some consideration to this very important matter. What I'm particularly struck with is not so much the extended outages, but the appalling number, absolute number of outages. And I noticed that when we were hearing about the considerations for which infrastructure needed attention and replacement, the frequency of failure was not mentioned. Those that are older might be replaced but not those that break every five minutes because I live in a house that breaks every five minutes the people across the street do not ever lose their power because they don't have the integrated infrastructure apparently Um, just to put actual numbers on this yes we experience an extended outage that everyone probably here did However, for us, it was the fourth outage this calendar year, less than two months, four outages. Last year, there were three. The year before, there were five. The year before that, there were five. And it goes back. Now, there are a lot of rather subtle and unintuitive problems. Every electronic device is is set back to its (laughs) um, defaults. Um, regardless of how brief the outage is. One of them, for example, that I have, it controls my uh, irrigation system. It gets reset to to defaults, which makes it over water. I don't want to waste water, but if I'm out of town or if I didn't realize there was an outage, I'm going to be doing that. There are all kinds of things you would never think of. The things break. Mine do. uh, we should know what the average number of outages are for all places in the city. And I, I'd like to compare my the 17 in the last concluded. two years
1: and two months.
0: Thank you for sharing your theirs. comments
1: with the committee. Do we have anyone else who has public comment on agenda item number 11 at this time? Madam Chair.
0: Uh, thank you so much, Mr. Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed. Ms. Dilger, thank you so much. Uh, I just, um, you know, you heard from folks. Uh, It seems like there's a a couple of areas that seem to be uh, constantly... um, experiencing outages Uh, the area around casitas uh, is one of them Um, and uh, you know the area that is uh, around Mount Davidson you showed a couple pictures that uh, it's exactly that Um, and then West Portal which uh, I have heard from the merchants in particular but also you know the residents it is um, coming after the pandemic so many of our small businesses are already struggling and having to close for a day a day and a half it's it's a real burden so uh, again I will ask can we get some kind of timeline or um, you know some plan for the replacement of the aging infrastructure so that you know residents can be assured that uh, this will eventually be taken
29: care of thank you I am absolutely happy to go back and gather some information and then coordinate with your office moving forward
0: Thank you so much. Can we have a timeline for when when we can do this?
29: Over the next few weeks, three weeks, um, two weeks? I'm not sure what exactly what it might entail. So if I can get back to you in terms of a timeline. Okay. When will you get back to me?
41: So so Rosie, will, we'll follow up with your office immediately. We're going to need okay. a little bit more detailed information because um, our. Our lines go through neighborhoods, so we'll need some very specific addresses that we can then look up, and then look up the history, and then from there we can go. So we'll Rosie will schedule time with your office in the next week or so, and then from there we'll let you
0: know how long it's going to take us to collect the data. Okay, well we can do that immediately in Perfect. terms of giving the information to you, Great. because we've been gathering this uh, from neighbors, and it's not like the entirety of District 7 or the west yeah. side, it's specific areas that have experienced these recurring outages that are unannounced, and it seems to be from, you know, equipment, aging equipment and failure. Yep. Understood. Perfect. Yeah. Once we get that information, we'll work with our electric ops team, and we will figure out how long it's going to take to get that. Great. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Um, any other questions from my colleagues? Uh, Okay, so uh, I just want to thank uh, neighbors for coming. Uh, I'm going to continue this item to the call of the chair. That way, you know, we can come back to it if we need to, or if any of my colleagues need to. Um, And we will be working with your office to follow up on the issues that came up. Thank you so much. Uh, So I'd like to make a motion that we continue this item to the call of the chair, please. Mr. Clerk.
1: On the motion to continue to the call of the chair, Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin? Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar? Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes.
0: Thank you so much. Do we have anything else on our agenda today, Mr. Clerk? There is
1: no further business. Okay.
0: We are adjourned. Thank you.